I think what comes down to on the moon board is that there's a higher percentage of strength requirement and a lower percentage mm-hmm. of technique. And so that doesn't mean like, let's just, I'm just going to say arbitrarily, 80% of the send is just having the raw power. And if you don't have that raw power, it's not going to happen no matter what. But then you have a 20% of technique. And now if you have unbelievable amount of power, maybe you only need to apply 5% of your technique. But that doesn't mean that you can't spend forever on refining the technique and getting it to 19.9999999% of what it takes to help you up the climb. And so technique will always be infinite. Like you can always get another little micro adjustment. So technique is always required. It's just in some climbs, the power requirement is so clear and obvious and you just, you have to have that. It's more binary. And now technique is where you can get that extra little bit. And so that's why we're always focused on technique and why power is always going to be part of the equation. Hey, welcome to the Test Piece Podcast. This podcast is about all things high-level climbing. My name's Joshua Horsley. I've been climbing for 25 years, and I love staying at the cutting edge of climbing. Hi, my name is Timothy Kang. I'm a pro climber, a coach, and a route setter, and climbing is my life. We started the podcast to explore and articulate what it takes to climb at a high level, what it takes to go from good to great. Okay, let's start the podcast. All right, Tim, my dude, how's it going, man? Josh, what's up? It's going pretty good. I'm like almost almost laughing for the intro. Uh, <laughs> Tim, uh, okay, I'm going to start out by telling you it's almost snowing right now. I just got a, a notification what? on my phone that there's snow coming. The ski resort right next to me is open. It is fully, fully winter, and I am fully psyched. I love winter. Wow, dude, I love the snow. I you know I like the rain. I like the weather. I like you know I love it when it's just raining and snowing outside. But I feel like snowing specifically, I think, does allude to that rock climbing feel. You know, alludes to Christmas presents and hanging out and just like I don't know. It's cold, but you can bundle and get warm inside. I I love the snow vibe. Yeah, I I'm, hate. I'm the, excited when it's hot. Like it's just hot, and you can't take off more clothes you but you can always put more clothes on and do stuff outside and i the one thing that's going to be interesting this season is that i i have a little bit more more time hopefully and i'm going to try to climb it here in the winter and I, i'm not used to this whole style of digging stuff out with a shovel you know tarping or brushing things right. off i've got a little project i'm 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 pretty psyched on echo chamber which is this new New, yeah, on the newish V14 that David Fitzgerald put up. And he was the one who told me to go suss it. And then your boy Danny did it. Tristan did it. And it's cool. And it gets a lot of sun. It's not too far off the road. So I can kind of like snowshoe in. And I'm just kind of looking forward to doing that. I, I don't know what you call it. Just like there's a side of me that just, you know, you show up at the gym. The whole the, the climbs are set. You you climb the board. Other people set the climbs. And you go outside, you climb the classics, and it's very different to to have that approach where you are the one who's digging it out, brushing it off the top. And I've done some of that, but I'm usually not the the guy who's like, you know, leading the charge. So I'm looking forward to to experiencing that whole side of living in the mountains and having a, a project that gets buried. Nice, dude. That sounds like a lot of uh, 
what Roman was talking about, what he loves, and actually got me pretty excited to do something like that or get into that at some point in my climbing life soon. Uh, so it's pretty cool that you get to do that. And uh, yeah, I, I guess, have you spent how many seasons in Tahoe have you lived or like gone out and actually climbed? This will be my third season. The The first one, I had just moved here. I was just come off of shoulder surgery and I spent it right. really repeating a bunch of stuff. Uh, last year, I I had kind of tweaked my shoulder and then we had that snow and, and I had like a six month old second kid, which kicked my ass as I've complained about a bunch. And I just skied a bunch because it was it was snowpocalypse here. Dude, we got like 50 feet of snow. There was no shoveling out stuff here. And the skiing was so good. It was, I mean, arguably maybe it'll be one of the best ski seasons I've ever seen in my life and never will see. So, you know, sometimes you got to just take a hint from the world and, and enjoy the, the outdoors, however it's uh, asking you to. So this this is, I don't know, I, I'll say this is my first season where I don't have a bunch of low hanging fruit of just like, oh, I should tick off this classic. And, and I am looking also to kind of dig my teeth into a project. Uh, and this one looks good. Yeah, it's fun, dude. I mean, I, I, it's been a long time for me since I've kind of started a process on a climb and kind of repeated going to a climb. And obviously, I just took a couple of weeks off to travel, but uh, it's been nice trying Sleepwalker and just going back and, you know, setting the pads up, doing the same routine, like, you know, feeling, trying to feel even just the smallest bits of, you know, quote unquote progress or how things are going. And it's definitely going to help create some more content for the podcast and stuff. So at least that'll be nice for both of us projecting again will be will be nice. <laughs> it cracks me up, Tim. You were saying, I don't want to, I'm not the kind of guy who goes and gets on the climb of the moment. And now everyone's doing <laughs> Sleepwalker. Like you are fully in the most popular hard climb in America right now. I feel like that's I the know. one I hate that it. everyone's ticking off. Ah, dude, don't, you should just be driven by what your psych is. And it seems like you are. Don't, don't worry what other people are doing. Uh, and yeah, I'm, still, yeah. I'm still rooting for you. I mean, dude, it's still a, it's a really cool climb, a great place. That's the only reason why I'm trying it. Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't care less about the whole the whole aura behind it, but it is just a, a phenomenal climb. It's it's pretty cool. It's it's hard to focus on that when it's when it is just there's so much news and so much Reddit and whatever. <laughs> there's so much back and forth about it in the community. I'm not a big redditor, but sometimes I do stumble upon it. And I am amazed at it. I mean, it's really cool how vibrant the community is there, but there is so much, there's so much anger and shit talking. And, and something that's really cool is, you know, Drew Ruana is on there. And it's so funny to see people like you see all these people chattering about, you know, some climb and then Drew comes in. It's just like, bam, like this is what Drew Ruana <laughs> thinks. And it's really good because it's just nice to see a bunch of armchair experts, which, you know, uh, you know, sometimes that's us too, but hopefully we don't give too crazy strong opinions about things that we don't know a ton about. And then Drew comes in and he is the definition of not an armchair expert. Uh, and so, yeah, just, just love that he's in there. Not, not that he's in there, like, you know, putting the gavel down and saying like, you guys are a bunch of idiots and I'm Drew just nice to, I think it's a really cool service he does to go in there and, you know, share his opinions. I think that is nice. I think it's very important to, you know, check the check all the armchair experts. Like, I I hope there's no back and forth beef between Drew and the other people, because I've thought personally about getting in on some Reddit things and just being like, look, guys, there's a lot of misunderstanding here. <laughs> there's a lot of assumptions that I don't think are so accurate, um, but we won't get into that nitty gritty. <laughs> OK, well, today I am the ultimate armchair expert because I did the most old man thing ever this weekend. I 
I hurt my back while building a climbing wall. I was like, I, I already have a moon board. I love my, I, I love my moon board, but my kids who are about to be four and I've got a, a one and a half year old and they're just, they come out and they want to climb with me. They brush the holds. My daughter will hang off the holds and they're just aching for another wall. So I'm like, Oh, I'll, I'll build a wall. I, I can do this. I'll build the wall. And I built a 10 degree wall and a vert wall next to it. And yeah, I was just putting on the finishing touches, getting a few pieces of plywood out. And then uh, I was like, oh, my back doesn't feel so good. And since then, I've just been, yeah, old man walking around. So I don't know, be careful when you climb your, your, or when you build your wall, uh, Tim, you don't want to, you don't want to do what I did. It's very embarrassing. Yeah. Dude, massage, trigger point, find, find a spot that, you know, like actually tweaked your back and it's probably just a muscle that's over tensed and give it give it a whole day's worth of sessions and for tim, me that always helps tim i i'm this will be the second time i see or today after the pod i'm gonna go see my the woman who does release therapy i've got oh, the nice. heating pad i'm doing bird do- i tim i got all my old man wisdom on. i even got my old man vicodin on it too but the reality is sometimes you just get hurt and it takes a couple of days out of you but i i'm really proud to say that last night even though i was bumming a little bit, feeling a little sorry for myself. I realized that I, my back was good enough to hangboard. So I, I did a little bit of hangboarding. I would, I That's like so hobble, awesome. dude, such an old man. Like I like hobble up to the hangboard and then I bear down and, and crimp and like get my 10 seconds in and I step off gently and go, Oh, oh my back. But I'm trying to, <laughs> well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to channel that, that Jesse Grouper vibe where dude, I, I, that was one of the reasons why I asked him those questions around how do you stay how do you stay positive when things feel like they're stacked against you? And it, right. you know, it, his answer was like, I don't know, just what are you going to do? You're going to freaking give up. And it just, it, right. it, it, right. it was so actually, he didn't even say it like that. It, it was just not even an option to him to give up. And I, I don't know. I, I love that about man. So I tried to thank you, Jesse. I, I channeled, I channeled my Jesse and I, I did my old man hangboard routine with a, with a bad back at the same time. Nice optimism. Hey, I got to say though, old people, you know, what, what I've noticed is, you know, older people do get hurt a little bit more often in that kind of just like freakish way where something just happens and you tweak your back, you know, your shoulder, your knee, your elbow or something and do generally very little about it. You know, I think, I think that's a, a thing I can say. I'm, I'm proud of you, Josh. You're, you're, you're taking care of yourself and doing the actual taking my so I always say something like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a, that's Vicodin. I just want to be clear. Those are, those are pills of Vicodin that I'm taking to make myself feel better. That's the trick. No, I, I, I really did uh, take one and I realized it it wasn't doing anything. You got, you got to move around and do stuff. Oh, wow. It was real bad for, for yeah. a minute there. Sorry to interrupt you. Talk about yeah. drugs. Well, go, go ahead. No, no, it's, it's cool <laughs> that you're doing a lot for yourself though. And, but then also that kind of what you're saying, you know, it's like, well, you still get hurt and you take, you know, you just have to take time off. It's like, well, that's just a reality. And that's, you know, cool to have that mindset as well but hopefully you get better in a couple of days and you get and you stay psyched and um yeah, yeah when are you totally. when are you going to go try uh, echo chamber next actually i'm curious um as soon as i can uh walk out there and hold a shovel no uh, i uh, probably in the next week or so if we if we keep good good temps and everything and, and i got like i don't know i just I, i'm hearing myself say this stuff and i have a voice in the back of my head around tim saying like watch your language and, and not not the swear words but just like it's not good for me to complain about being old or complain about these things happening because honestly, like if you bumped into me at the gym and I'm climbing, you know, alongside whoever, 
I, I like look pretty young. I climb powerfully yeah. and normal. Like you would never really know. Like people are always stunned when they find out how old I am or that I have kids. And, yeah. and, and so it's just, it's really, it, you got to be careful, Josh. You got to be careful using this bad language where you put yourself in a mindset that, you know, if you say you're old, well, then you have all these expectations. And honestly, they're negative expectations around it. And, you know, I just, I, it's something I got to watch and I encourage everyone to, to think about that. And, you know, thank, thanks, Tim, for always kind of making sure that you watch the language that you use about yourself because it has power. Dude, what a good, what a good way to kind of, that it's very similar to our topic for today or talk that talks that really highlights a, a leak in the danger of mindsets, you know, the danger of that language. And that language also, it's funny, the way that you just said that I didn't realize came from my mom. My mom always used to, so in, the, in the con, my mom actually was, uh, thr throughout my entire upcoming, she was a, a youth pastor. And before that, she was a missionary pastor for a long time, just in Christian churches. And, uh, something that she used to tell me a lot when I would like go to school or like, <laughs> I would just like talk shit about some, somebody or something that happened in school, like as a child or something. And she'd be like, Tim, like the words that you use have power. Like don't, don't curse people. Don't say any things because those things come true. And she would tell me with such a serious tone, I'd be like, Oh man, like every, everything must be like that. And so I, I took that very seriously growing up. And so thanks mom. You helped our podcast. <laughs> thanks Tim's mom. You helped our podcast. Words have power. That's why we podcast, man. Uh, well, while I was sitting on the couch uh, and being an armchair expert, I just wanted to to say really quickly that I watched that ego death film that Tension put out. And I think I looked at it recently and it didn't have an insane amount of views. So if you don't know what we're talking about right now, that that's fine. It wasn't the most popular uh, video ever, but it was so damn good. And it was put out I, I think it was put out through tension climbing, but mm -hmm. uh, Mike Rosado was kind of the guy who made it, and it it focused on it, it focused on HP forty, which is a famous climbing area in the South, and it was called Ego Death because, as someone who's been there before, the grades at that place can either make you feel really crappy and hurt your ego because you struggle. Or they can, or you can just let them go and enjoy it for what it is. And it's a, it's kind of thought of as this very technical, slopey sandstone place. And my experience there was highlighted by my struggle on Millipede, this very famous V5, which somehow didn't make into the movie. Bumboy was there, the V3 next to it, but the V5 that I literally took two hours. And this is like a trip where I was flashing double digits, like, and I got just, and I had a blast on it. And I just, I encourage everyone to to listen or to to watch it because it's just it's fun and it shows you it has these amazing climbers on it. Zach Gall is on there. I, I mean, Mike is on there. Uh, they're all really strong climbers, and you can see them having fun and struggling their way up these slopey, tricky climbs. And it was one of those few climb or one of those few climbing films you see that are just enjoyable even without seeing like V seventeen get ticked. And I, I wanted to bring it up just because it was awesome, but because it kind of ties into our topic today. And our topic today is going to be around a learning mindset and an effort mindset. And actually, I don't want to go too much deeper into it because we got other banter to do, but I, I just wanted to like give a thumbs up to how good the video was and encourage everyone to go watch it. I think you you saw it too, Tim, yeah? Yeah, I saw it the other day. Um, yeah, I want to hover on ego death for a second uh, because 
I mean, a couple of things that you're saying that I want to echo. It, it was just a cool film. Uh, it's surprising that it doesn't have that many views. Unfortunately, you know, I think like tension maybe just puts out lots of different types of content and wouldn't usually be known for just putting out like a cool climbing film. Uh, I would consider this just a, a really cool climbing film. I think Mike, Mike Rosado did a really good job. He seems to be doing a really good job in all sorts of tension things as well. Um, I'm going to read a description from the actual bio of their YouTube video. Uh, and it describes what an ego death is uh, because uh, I had the same assumption as to like the ego death was correlated to just horse pens in general being that certain style, which totally makes sense. But this is what they write, which I think is very fascinating. So it says an ego death most often refers to a complete loss of subjective self-identity, most commonly associated with a psychedelic trip, which I thought was interesting. In the context of the unique style and difficult nature of horse pens 40, an ego death is the point in which a climber must make a choice to either succumb to the incredibly challenging nature of the boulder field or let go of expectation and embrace what the area has to offer. Which I think is even more of an in-depth description of exactly kind of what you were talking about, which is that you kind of run into horse pens and you're like, damn, like, what am I supposed to do here? You know, like, and, and the one other point I want to make is there's maybe like 15 to 20 climbs in this list. And most of them are in like the V1 to V8 range. And that's the beauty of horse pens is I don't think there's, it's insanely hard bouldering there, but it's one of the most fun bouldering days I've ever had. So I got to go to so Triple fun. Crown there last year and I actually won that, which was for me really special because I'd heard a lot about horse pens. I had my own, you know, Stingray was the first boulder that we pulled on and I flashed it, which is that V9 like little mantle thing. And I was like, oh, today's going to be a great day. Like I could feel the rock. I could really feel the style already. And I was embracing it and I had a lot of fun, but I could see it going exactly the opposite way where I maybe didn't even get 10 climbs done for the triple crown list where I was like, well, if I, if I do this the wrong way and that has to do with the mind. And if I have too much of an ego here, like I'm going to get screwed. And uh, yeah, what an insane crag. And uh, it's just so special. And I think, I think everybody who's maybe, I don't know, interested in seeing a new area or going to a new area should watch that film. I think that film is so well done. On that, uh, on that thought around ego death, I want to share my, my uh maybe it was two weekends ago or something i went up to check out echo chamber and next to it is this v10 v11 called eminently climbable and it is just my ultimate anti-style and it it just kicked my butt and i was sitting there it was in the sun no i'm not even gonna blame it conditions may have been a factor but i would have failed on it if i hadn't have done it and i have friends who are objectively not maybe as good of a climber as I am. And they have an easy time with it. And it really kind of got me. And there was a moment where I got really angry on really, really upset myself. And just like, why can't I do this? Like it, in my head, echo chamber seems more doable. So, you know, the V14 two lines down seems more doable and easier to me than the V10, uh, you know, right next to it. And, you know, I really had to to shift my thinking and just say, you know, like there's a lot for me to learn here. Like this is going to be fun and it's a cool climb. And the, the thing that is interesting about that whole ego death concept is that there's multiple layers to this. There's the climb in itself and the grade it gets. There's the expectation of yourself. And then there's also when you see other people and your ego gets wrapped up in how they do versus how you do. And, you know, look, uh, ego it's not, well, this will tie into our podcast. You need 
ego is not totally a bad thing. Like you need to have the confidence in yourself. You need to, to, you know, know who you are and put out hard efforts, but you also need to know when to drop in, not like get in the way of your long-term progress. And I just wanted to add that other layer that people don't talk about where you see other people do it and have success and you in your head, you think, no, but I'm better than that kid or, you know, or whoever it may be, I'm better than them. And so I, what's wrong with me? And I just, you know, watch out for that. You guys, like, you know, I'm not going to say it won't happen to you, but make sure that you don't become one of those people who, what I see happens in, in those people who really get wrapped up in getting upset about their friends who climb things better than them. And they think they're better than that person climbing that thing is often they start really avoiding climbs. They know they're going to be bad at. So I knew I was going to be bad at this climb, but if I never got on it, it, you, you Everyone knows that that person who says, oh, I don't climb compression. It's like, what do you mean you don't climb compression? And we, But we all know what that means. It means you're not good at it and you're embarrassed to. Don't be that person. Like, If you want to get good at something, be willing to suck at it first. Mm. I, just, I just wanted to stay quiet there because it's like, it's just reverberating in my head, like just this wisdom. And it's such an important aspect. I think, I think in my 11 years of climbing, you know, I've climbed less than half as long as Josh has, but I feel like I've had, you know, half of my life absolutely dedicated and intentional into rock climbing and paying attention, competing straight, you know, having projects year after year that are really important to me. And throughout that time, the one thing that I've learned that is the most important thing is the mindset behind what we do, because that can really create your experience. It can kill your experience. It can also be the the one kind of North star to get us better will usually be the mindset and kind of Josh's story about um, eminently climbable is what you're saying. The name of the climb was, yep. Uh, We were had, we had a phone call and this, this is kind of where this topic for the day came to be. Uh, And it was funny because the way that Josh was explaining on the phone was kind of like, yeah, and it was just this experience and, you know, just kind of talking through it. And I was like, that is exactly what we were just talking about. You know, that, that point right there. And so many people have this experience where it's like, dude, but in this climb and this style, this V14 field, maybe not for everybody's V14, but you know, for you saying that this V14 almost feels easier and more doable than this V10, V11 crimp line. And it's like, so what? You're right. You're totally right, Josh. You're totally right in that this thing is probably more doable, but why? Right. And once you actually start answering that question, why? And then you start to peel back the layers of your weaknesses and you're not very, you know, most people aren't that intimate with their weaknesses. They're not that intimate with how those weaknesses actually affect us. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm not going to go deep into that now, but I have a lot of thoughts here. I have a lot of personal experiences. Of course, this all comes from personal experience. Not, you know, I I've, was talking uh, with Michaela, my girlfriend yesterday about this and why podcasting is so interesting for me. And it's because the way that I view myself is that I'm a researcher going out, doing my thing. I come here and I share my research with you guys. So, you know, this is something that I feel really, really strongly about is this whole ego death concept, but also just the the power of the mindset and the danger of the mindset. And that's just one example of an obvious danger of a mindset where you can start saying things and kind of what Josh was saying even before, you don't even realize you're saying things. You don't even realize you're self-prophesying these negative concepts that may or may not be true, you know, and they may or may not be true, but you'll never know until you're honest, you're humble and you're confident and you go for things and you check. And that's kind of going to be the the overview of what the topic is going to be today. But before we get into that, we got more banter. Yeah, my, my banter is just a total 180 and it has to do with our last episode and the moon board specifically. Actually, I guess all board climbing. 
but I got this, I started, I started chatting with uh, Steve Rader, who's just a, you know, a, a, a guy who listened, found us through the podcast. And then he's just an incredible moon border. And first of all, he did that Aiden Roberts uh, moonboard masters climb that yeah V12. I was always, I'm always talking about right? oh, it's damn. like V12, like actually V14, or V15. So first of all, just amazing job, Steve. Like that is incredible. But the, the thing I wanted to talk about that he brought up and I don't have the best answer to this. It's just something that I want to peel back a little bit is we talk about how, I don't know if we talk about this, but it's kind of almost unsaid board climbing isn't really technical or it's, it's more about being strong. It's more about like executing or I don't know how to put it, but I think this is kind of always under the hood of every discussion where people just assume that board climbing is just, you know, a, a power based thing. And you can contrast that with, I don't know, Squamish climbing, like, you know, we talked about with Ethan and Steve wanted to challenge that assumption and say, wait, like there's, uh, unlimited technique in these climbs. You know, he spent months on that that specific climb, refining every little micro beta. And so I just want to explore this concept of what do we mean by technical climbs and you know how are boards climbs or specifically maybe moonboard climbs not technical or are they? And and I, I just I don't have the best answer to this. I have some ideas. But I think it's a fun topic because I've talked about how I learned a lot by moon boards being so narrow and constrained that it allowed me to just hone in on micro beta because it's it, it takes away the infinite choices and then well it doesn't it takes away the infinite choices in feet let's say but then it gives you an infinite amount of adjustment in the feet that you do have and you know so where does what do we mean by technique how do boards not have are not considered as technical i just wanted your thoughts on that tim yeah i think i do have um a really clear thought in two two things why why we as climbers like to categorize you know moonboard climbing into this more like quote unquote powerful way because it's not like you know I've always thought about this if you take any CrossFit bro bodybuilder type dude gymnast you take any strong person and take them into the gym they're not going to climb that hard you know almost certainly uh, even if you explain it to them even if you explain to them how to climb and we all know this anybody who's listening to this podcast can have this ego and ownership and thinking, yeah, I know how to climb and I could take any CrossFit bro who's twice my size and twice as strong as me. And they could not climb as hard as me. We just know that that's the truth. There's so much. And that's why we podcast. That's why we go deep into, you know, that's why I'm so personally passionate about the fundamental techniques of climbing. These are all fundamental, man. Like everything we've talked about on the podcast, it's not that advanced or Maybe they happen to be, you know, every guest that we have on who, who comes in and talks and kind of reiterates our fundamentals are like, yeah, well, this is the things that I've worked on for like 10 years straight. It's like, well, great. Cause it means you're climbing very, very well. So these things obviously matter a lot anyway. So obviously we know there's a deep level of nuance to the technique that we do in climbing. Well, so obviously that doesn't mean that the moon board is just power climbing either because we can't throw those people on there. And it's not like they're going to have more success on that board. They're probably going to have less success on that board than any lo other level of climbing. And so what I think find is interesting is what I feel about the moon board is that it just focuses on the most specific ways to get up that specific wall. And so what I could see is a wide variety of types of boards that exist that do focus on the techniques that are required for those boards, which is really 
kind of what we talked about on that last podcast about comparing the different boards is what are, what is required of you to climb up this wall because that's what you're working on the whole time. And so um, the, the way that I kind of view uh, the moon board concept in terms of like what technique is required, I see that as a minor. So going back to what Josh was talking about, minors and majors, and, you know, he always kind of said in, in a podcast before in the classrooms, don't major in the minors, right? Like it, it's fine to see the effectiveness of using a one-arm pull-up and seeing how that can attribute to more climbing success in other ways. But one-arm pull-ups aren't the end-all be-all. We don't go and talk about our rock climbing and showing like, oh, I can do a one-arm pull-up, so I'm going to be an expert rock climber or whatever. And maybe some people have that misconception, but that's not the truth, right? That's, that's a minor. I think moonboarding, in my opinion, is another version of a minor. And so when you master a minor, even when you go and master a one-arm pull-up, there's a ridiculous amount of technique and timing and strength required to do one-arm pull-up, right? When I figured, I was telling Michaela this yesterday, you know, I first did my first one-arm pull-up, I think six years ago, like about four years deep into climbing. I worked really, really hard to do a lot of pulling, lots of variations of pull-ups. I never really trained a one-arm pull-up, but I could just do one. And then I remember I was trying to show my friends, I couldn't do it again. I was like, I just did what I swear. Like, I don't know, I must've just engaged into it properly, did the perfect timing. And, you know, just because I was strong enough, it didn't mean that I knew exactly how to do it every time. And over time I was, even when I was able to do like two one-arm pull-ups, sometimes I would pull on the bar and be unable to do it. Nowadays, I will never not be able to do a one-arm pull-up. It's not about the strength. Sometimes I won't be able to do more than three. Sometimes I won't be able to do more than five. Sometimes I can do way more than that, right? But it's the knowledge of how to execute this really difficult physical and technical movement. That's how I see the moonboard. The moonboard is all these really physically difficult things to do in the climbing realm, but they're very specific. They're very specific ways to do these movements, climbs, how to move on these feet, how to move on these types of handholds. And I've generalized when I climb on the moonboard, I've generalized so many concepts that I see. And it's not so much uh, learning anymore. You know, when I climb on the boards as a whole, the tension board, kilter board, moon board, or, or really any type of board, I'm not learning very much. And that's cool because it's not why I'm there. It's not why I'm climbing on the boards. I actually climb on the board because I know that personally, I already know that I'm not going to learn as much on the boards. I am just there to kind of refine that that part of climbing, which is trying really hard in these specific techniques. And sometimes it's weird, man. Like, you know, you'll just like worm and noodle around certain positions on the board. You get really close hand foot matches. You climb off balance all the time. You put a right foot on, go left-handed to something all the time. And that's just the best way to get up a wall. It's so interesting. Like I do a lot of like, you know, quote unquote, incorrect things in most climbing theory. And so that's, that's moonboarding. And, and again, obviously, so what that means in my opinion is that climbing is really about a wide variety of a yeah. wide base of techniques, a deep understanding in all the variations of movement. So you can get up most climbs the best way. And it, there's very obvious best ways to get up a lot of the board climbs. It's kind of my point there. Mm -hmm. And, but to operate them is really difficult. I, I, I think what really stood out to me when you said all that was this idea that moonboarding is a, a minor in the grand scheme of climbing. And that's the, you know, that kind of hurts to, to hear in the sense, because I put so much <laughs> effort into it and you would like to think it's, it's well, me more too. of a, a lead domino. And I, I think it, it's probably one of the larger minors because clearly, you know, you can look at people who have had a lot of success on the moon board and whether that is what caused them to have success in other domains of climbing. Uh, you know, it's, there's always some carryover, right? So this is when we say like, don't major in the minors. And, you know, the one-arm pull-up is the one I always use as an example because people want one-arm pull-up. Now, just because 
you know, people might come back and say, oh, look, I trained for a one arm pull up and I got better at climbing. It's like, yes, you did. Like that, it doesn't mean that, you know, getting better at a minor doesn't make you better, but it's this idea of what's your return on investment? What's your opportunity cost? That effort that you spent on the one arm pull up, could it have been better spent elsewhere so that you would have gotten better at climbing? And then, you know, as we've both talked, or at least for me, when I did a one arm pull up, I never did any training for a one arm pull up. I was climbing and I then did the one arm pull up. And that's always that, that thing. It's like, what can you do that? is the, the lead domino. So, okay. Back to, back to the moon board and, or boards in general. I was just actually, first of all, I want to say that one of the benefits of that moon board is that kind of awkwardness and that kind of going off of the wrong foot. And I remember somewhere along the way in my climbing journey up, up the grades, you know, first you're kind of awkward. Then you realize how to not be awkward. And sometimes you then really embrace technique and you're like, okay, both feet on, I'm going to do this move and keep all my points on. And you know, you find the right feet and you really embrace that kind of understanding how to feel smooth. And then I remember kind of hitting a wall and I recognized then that sometimes in harder climbing, whatever that means to you, things may not be perfect. Like you might yeah, not have the heel hook that you just like, I need to have a heel hook. It's like, oh, you don't. So what now? And as you get stronger and more technical, you're often able to make those climbs that felt off balance and awkward, much more smooth and more kind of fluid and look good. But I feel like you have to always recognize that when you're really pushing your limits, sometimes you have to get into this area that doesn't quite feel so smooth and nice. And then you see people on the moon board doing those awkward climbs and you're like, wow, ravioli biceps uh, made that awkward move look real pretty. So uh, maybe it's me. Okay. uh, Back to this idea of technique on boards. And I, my my way to answer this issue that that Steve brought up and and he's a just a moonboard extraordinaire moonboarder extraordinaire who's done it a lot and so I know that he's gone in really deep with these layers of techniques and when I thought about this question and just it made me think about what is technique fundamentally and then how does it relate to sending a climb and how is that related to power and what I think happens with the moonboard is that if you think about a climb needing a certain level of power and a certain level of technique, every climb needs some blend of both. Like you just, you have to have some level of technique, just like Tim was saying, you can, someone can come along and be unbelievably strong and they do CrossFit or gymnastics, but then if they have no technique, then they can't send a climb, even if they're physically capable. I think what comes down to on the moon board is that there's a higher percentage of strength requirement and a lower percentage mm-hmm. of technique. And so that doesn't mean like, let's just, I'm just going to say arbitrarily you need, you know, 80% of the climb. This is just, this is so unscientific. I'm just making stuff <laughs> up. You, you know, 80% of the send is just having the raw power. And if you don't have that raw power, it's not going to happen no matter what, but then you have a 20% of technique. And now if you, you have unbelievable amount of power, maybe you only need to apply 5% of your technique. But that doesn't mean that you can't spend forever on refining the technique and getting it to 19.9999999% of what it takes to help you up the climb. 
And so technique will always be infinite. Like you can always get another little micro adjustment. So technique is always required. It's just in some climbs, the power requirement is so clear and obvious and you just, you have to have that. It's more binary. And now technique is where you can get that extra little bit. And so that's why we're always focused on technique and why power is always going to be part of the equation. We're never here to say like, don't get stronger. Uh, but technique is that thing that in that moment and, you know, and it's something that you carry with you again and again and again, as you learn your tricks, maybe next time you step up to a moonboard problem, instead of starting at 5%, you start at 6% because you learned something. And now your body moves in this special way that you, that you got from the moonboard. So this is just, you guys, I, I don't want people to think this is exact and perfect. This is just my, my thought. Right. Uh, yeah. And that idea isn't exclusive to moonboarding. You know, the idea of the differences in what you focus on and what percentage of what, well, you know, how much of the technique can you actually use? And you, of course you can refine that over time, even if you don't possess the power, that's not exclusive to moonboarding, that's climbing. But the moonboard, you know, what I heard from you there is that the moonboard, because the percentage of moonboard climbs that have such a high requisite, prerequisite of strength required and power required to even do those climbs, we just noticed that aspect of that, you know, that strength requirement in moonboarding so much that we don't focus on the technique as much. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't though. And so, yeah. And what I hear from that kind of underlying tone is especially this guy, Steve, you know, really good moonboarders do look really technical. Someone like ravioli biceps is really technical on the moonboard. You know, I watch him climb and I am amazed all the time when I watch him climb, but at the same time, it's still less notes. It's less, it's just simply less notes than the, the vast majority of other climbing styles. If I, I would be, infinitely more impressed if ravioli could replicate that success on all other styles and forms of rock climbing which i'm sure he could i'm absolutely sure he could i'm not saying that he can't i'm just saying i wouldn't expect it because that's why i think the moonboarding is a minor you know and 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 another point here if ravioli did find success in you know replicating a lot of the styles relative to the styles that are required in other styles and forms of rock climbing i would not say that the moonboard gave that to him i would say that is an aspect of himself of that him. is just good at rock climbing and and he and him so that's how i can kind of peel back those layers and see that the moonboard is is not the lead domino there it's a minor and we're using it to develop ourselves and that's why people like ravioli biceps and and are impressed by him mm. it's not it, it, it's it's a quality of him that showed that when he focused his efforts on this specific thing, he is both strong, but also really went in deep and he climbs beautifully on there. And I agree where I, and I know he climbs outdoors and we got to get him on here at some, I, I know we'll, we'll end up having him on yeah, here at should. some point. Uh, and it's not like he doesn't climb outdoors. It's just, that's where he has put his focus and effort. And so of course he shows a better mastery in there. And I'm not going to talk about the, you know, he, he just, he loves it and, and, and good for him. And, and the, yeah. the, I just want to highlight one, sorry, one last thing on that strength requirement, just make it like really clear what we're talking about, where the strength is kind mm -hmm. of binary, but the technique is a little more, you know, just not adjustable. I don't know. Adjustable. I'm going to say that. Okay. Wolf is a really famous V10 on the 2016 set. And I haven't actually tried it yet, but it's, it culminates in a big jump from, two yellow crimps to another yellow crimp and you have to hang this left-hand yellow crimp and your feet, your feet are going to cut. Maybe I I'm pretty sure I, again, I haven't tried it. So I'm almost sure that your feet have to cut. And the, the point being that 
let's say I pushed someone up into that ending position and you know they took their feet off. If they can't hang that ending position, they cannot do wolf no matter how much technique they employ. So then you can just get into all the little micro details so that ideally when you jump and latch that hold, you are perfectly your momentum has perfectly stopped. You're straight underneath it. Your hand lands in a full crimp. You're pinched. Everything is tight. Like you can optimize it. And so it's the perfect moment. But if I put you up there and you couldn't hang it, then I don't care how good your technique is. It's just, that's, that's the binary. That's the, you are not sending. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a, yeah. that's a really good way of, uh, I just sent you a video of me doing it. I put it on my Instagram a long time ago, um, <laughs> but I was really proud of that one because Dude, I good. remember looking at that. I also, yeah, I didn't like ever try it. And I think it took me one or two tries that session. And uh, I just felt really strong. And the main, the main reason why I didn't try it was because I was pretty sure I couldn't hang that crimp position. And, and here's another caveat there. I could hang the crimp position. No, no problem. But I knew that the requirement for doing that movement was holding the crimp position with a little bit of swing. And in order to hold that hold with a little bit of swing, my arm needed to be engaged. And that's really where I was like, I'm not sure if I can get to the hold or hold it engaged. You know, it's really specific prerequisite for me to hold crimps like that. So understanding, you know, under all those layers, understanding your strengths and weaknesses properly and really properly, you know, un truly understanding your strengths is really important, you know, because th that actually gives you an understanding of what you're actually committing to, you know, do you need to hold the hold engaged? Do you need to hold the hold with height or less swing? What do you need to focus on? Because you are able to control all those things. You're able to use techniques to then control the impact of what movements are. You can do things really straightforward and add all the impact in the world that the climb is going to give you based on you not doing techniques, but techniques can alleviate the impact of certain movements, right? And you can make them the minimum impact required, which is based on the ending position, which I think is a, a really underrated way of analyzing your climbing is looking from the end position backwards. It's actually something that I think in all, in all the clients I've ever worked with, that theory comes up at least once in the first session that I work with almost anybody, if not every single person I've ever worked with. We talk about the ending position of your climbing movements. So if there's anything you get from this podcast or this banter, Look at the ending position that's required of you. Do you have that strength? Do you actually have that strength? If you do, you can do the move. You can do the move. It just might require technique. And if there's more feet, if there's more ways to grab the holes, there's more technique available for you. This is why you should push your friends through moves, you know, take weight off and then mm -hmm. find that ending position. I, I think it's one of the most common quote unquote advanced techniques that I employ and my friends employ that I don't see get used as much as you would think. I, I, I mean, right. you just, maybe it's because people don't like, you just got to literally grab your buddy's butt and push it up and just support <laughs> them there. And, but it really teaches you how to move through it. And then, you know, they get to that ending position and you take the weight off and it's just, it's just magic. It, 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 it mm -hmm. teaches you a whole bunch of things. And I like what you're saying where, and if you can't hold that ending position, you're in trouble. And, uh, you know, maybe it is time to go back to the hangboard. And, oh, I wanted to say, uh, I, I just, as I was thinking about this whole, this, this spectrum of strength and technique, it made me think of something Will Anglin talks about where he has this concept where maybe the hangboard is the least technical thing you can do. And it's really strength requirements, right? Like you just, you know, I mean, that's, that's the whole point is can you hold on or not? There's, you know, hopefully you can figure out how to put all your fingers on and get into a full crimp or whatever. 
Uh, although actually there is a little technique there. Um, and then, you know, you can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and that's usually complex outdoor rock climbing where there's, uh, you know, people think that there's not a lot of feet, but when you see experts climb, all of a sudden you realize that there is a lot of feet outdoors. There is an infinite amount of feet. And in most cases, there's a different sequence. And even in some of the hardest climbs in the world, Sleepwalker, it is amazing how many different sequences there are. And, you know, just outdoor climbing with all its geometric shapes and the, you know, feet will be on a different plane. They'll be under you or they'll be around a bulge or just, it's so, it's infinitely complex. And, and, uh, uh, you know, and again, we can say it's infinitely complex in the boards too, but it's always the spectrum and, you know, where do boards fit in that spectrum more towards the strength side. And that's why actually, and that's not why anything that just is. And so understand that and use it to your advantage and make sure not to use it to your disadvantage. If strength is something you have in spades and technique is something that we all, well, we can always get better technique. Yeah. Okay. Tim, I just love boards. I just want to talk about boards. Oh yeah. Dude, I could have jumped in there, but I'm not going to. (laughs) Uh, We've gotten just such a Good response. They're actually, I would say, not all of our responses to the board content we put out is good. It's it's somehow like more controversial than other stuff. You know, you say moonboard grades are easy, or moonboard grades are hard, or the setting is good, or the saying is bad, or training holds should be wood, not plastic, and people just flip out. And I, yeah, I I, I kind of get it, but it's funny. It's it's almost like. The stakes are so low. You just have this little board in, you know, a little 10 foot all tall board. And there's like a leaderboard on moon cl- and just people are just into it. But I don't know, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm down to just get in, yeah. the, in the mud and just be wrestle about uh, what makes moon boards or other boards good or not. And so, yeah, I have fun with it. I do find it interesting. You know, I think, I think uh, just the nature of what climbing is and how we all interact with it and how we feel about it. I mean, it makes us very, you know, brutally passionate about it but also we're going to be controversial because we all have different opinions and we're d- different people but i think it, the boards are interesting because of the access you know it's so many people have access to boards i mean almost everybody has access to boards at this point anybody who's a rock climber has access to boards and uh what uh, the reason why i don't feel so fired up about it and i just kind of consume it and consume it and have a lot of strong opinions about it is because where i feel fired up is like competitions and less people less people compete but if if y'all competed if if the board people competed that, oh, we'd have back and forth arguments left and right about controversial things. What's better? What's worse? Like we like to categorize competitions in this one format of like this parkour style, but there's a wide, wide, deep net of styles that we see in competitions, whether they're good, bad, you know, we like them, we don't like them. There's just way more opinions there, in my opinion. It is also because there's not, there's less majors there and or there's less minors there in competition. There's more, there's, there's more majors than there are minors. And so, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's, Tim, I it's think... more deep. I think the constrained nature of the boards actually makes people even more like upset because it gives them an even smaller thing to argue about. Uh, and that's fair, actually. And, and I want yeah. uh, you know, I uh, we got some comments around. Hey, what about like the decoy board? Actually, Bryce and actually another buddy of mine, Bryce Viola, was like, "Don't sleep on the decoy board." And I just, I, I, I just want to say, we. I, I mean, I think you've climbed the decoy board. Uh, I have no, I've not. Just seen it. You know, I, I like, there is a lot of boards out there and we didn't mean for that podcast to be 
the end all be all where we went out and climbed on every board for 20 hours and decided it. It's just our, our take on kind of the most popular boards that we, that I would say the majority of people have experienced. And so uh, I'm not saying that there's no other board that is better or worse than moon kilter, you know, tension grass. Like that, that's not really what we are saying there. We were just kind of looking at the the boards that are the most common, but I, I, I will say that a big part of it is this community aspect is this ability to argue about it. And that, that is part of the fun. So, you know, I think one of the reasons why we probably won't cover some of the, the less popular boards is that there's less people to argue with about, and that's part of the fun. <laughs> so anyways, yeah. apologies Dude, if to, you want, to those we didn't cover. You know? Yeah. If we, if you guys want us to cover boards, uh, ship us a plane ticket to your board or send us a decoy board, uh, at decoy, not sponsored. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> if, if you want us to try things, you know, it, it really does depend on our access to them. Right. And so like the, the moon, the reason why we talked about the moon board, kilter board, and tension board too specifically was because those are the most generic boards you're going to see in most gyms. Uh, and we've, we have access to those. I mean, I think the decoy board, it looks awesome. I, I would have, I'm sure great opinions, but I've only seen one in Carbondale. I've only seen one in Monkey House in Carbondale, which and is, I don't even know where just closed too. That place just closed too. Really? Yeah. That gym yeah. like closed, closed for good. Yeah. Oh, that's. All right. I don't know if it's oh, for good. I just know I, I have a buddy who lives in Aspen, and that was his closest gym, and he was bummed when. Oh, I love that gym. It, it closed. Oh, I yeah. love that gym. He so really much. liked it too. Yeah. Oh, it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully they'll oh, reopen. I, I don't know what happened. I have no insight. Just uh, it always makes me sad when gyms close down because that's that community. You know, you just you. You just, there was a bunch of people who always met up there on Tuesdays and Thursday nights, had a blast, had a beer yeah, after, man. and those people are just dead. No, it's, <laughs> that, that, really, uh. that place is just dead. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, on that note of the the community loving those boards, and I, I just, I want to take a moment to, actually, this is more like a Thanksgiving moment, even though Thanksgiving is a little, little ways past now. Uh, just some some gratitude for everyone. Uh, the Spotify Wrapped of 2023 came out recently, and I got tons of messages. We got tons of messages, Tim. But I'm usually the one on the Instagram, so I just said me. But we got tons of messages from people sharing their their way of saying thanks via Spotify Wrapped, and I just couldn't believe how I just couldn't believe how many minutes and hours you guys have listened to us. We had tons of top fans, which were people who it's their top podcast. I think we had, I don't know, like 600 or something and thousands of people. We were in their top three or top five. I don't remember the exact breakdown, but just it, I, wow. I don't think we often realize we, we just, we don't know about this. And then Spotify really showed us that there are people out there really listening. It just, I don't know. It warmed, warmed my heart, Tim. Uh, it made me feel like we're part of a community. It, I, I think what it does for me is that we have these opinions about climbing. We see climbing a certain way. And sometimes you're not sure if you're in a vacuum, you know, and you're not sure if like, this is what, how other people feel. And we really love this nuance of climbing, the beauty of the complexity of our sport, that it's, it's this never ending dive into, is it mental? Is it physical? Is it emotional? Is it, what's the, the weather like right now? Like, you know, just rocks, plastic, wood, like, everything all these deep deep nuances that we don't boil we we don't enjoy it being boiled down to uh sets and reps on a hangboard and knowing that there's a community out there that feels the same way we do really you know brought a smile to my face and thank you to everyone who sent me 
or sent us those messages. I tried to type back, thank you. I tried to show my my gratitude uh, via text, but just seriously, thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, I've felt an overwhelming amount of appreciation uh, recently for the podcast and and whatnot. And like, if 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 we can provide some clarity and grow as a group together and our understanding for climbing, which is exactly how this all started. You know, like we just climb in groups, like-minded people and, you know, continue doing that, but we can do it at a large scale with the power of podcasting and the internet and stuff. So it's pretty awesome. I, I find it really special. Community is that, is that word for me? It's, it's why I yeah think I, I stick around in, in climbing. I, I mean, I love our sport physically and have, and the places it's taken me. But, uh, you know, I look around at my friend group, it's, it's those people, uh, you know, that I've met through climbing, really. I think there's something about our sport where you get to see people at their best and their worst. You know, you, you, there's not a lot of things that we do in life where we fail repeatedly in front of our friends. Like, you know, it's like, oh, I fell. Mm-hmm. Oh, I fell. Oh, I, I'm not sending. I'm, I'm upset. Or, you know, on a trip, you know, you don't, I didn't sleep. I, I missed my flight. I'm, I'm tired. I'm stressed. Uh, and also those moments of absolute elation and moments of danger and fear. And I think it just brings this community really, really, really tight knit. And I, I love that about what we do. And so I'm just happy to be here building that community. And I'll tell you what, it also really kicked me into high gear for 2024 and just thinking, okay, like let's, uh, let's see what we can do more for everyone. And, uh, on that note, just, just thank you. Just, uh, grateful for everyone listening. Hell yeah. Okay. Uh, that, that's it. I don't want to do it. I, I had other announcements, but that just, that, that was, that took the, that was the gold medal of uh, one to put out there and I don't want to spoil it with anything else. So I'm going to go right Sweet. in. <laughs> I'm going to go right into my pro tip, which has nothing to do with the topic of the day. Uh, and it's really random, but it's about having bigger shoes for climbing. And that that sounds weird, but I I just want this like frame shift where it's always about how small a shoe you can get into. And that's how I thought about climbing shoes forever. I mean, like literally for like 25 years, 30 years. Now I would watch my, like my girlfriend is putting on shoes and you see her put it on. And I'm like, "Mm, I, I, those look too big. You didn't even struggle. You just put them right on like that. Like, (laughs) like you got, where's your plastic bags? Like you're not even grimacing. They just slid right on. And so there's this mindset of how small a shoe can I put on? And I've kind of recently switched into how big a shoe can I get away with? And I've Hmm. actually been upsizing kind of a half size steadily. And I, I likened it first to my time where I started walking a bunch and my feet like got bigger and I like put on barefoot shoes, you know, that whole barefoot thing. And, you know, my feet like got bigger, I swear. And I started upsizing my climbing shoes because they just didn't feel quite right anymore. And I've just noticed that I keep wearing bigger shoes, but my performance doesn't suffer. And I would say now my limit is more, will my heel slip off? Like when I'm doing a really, really aggressive heel hook, is my shoe going to stay on? And yeah, I just would say that there's a lot of benefits from having bigger shoes. And, you know, if there's no, if there's no loss in performance, you're probably going to have like less ankle injuries. It's probably just going to be more enjoyable. And this doesn't mean like, go get out, go get some big floppy shoes, but just shift that frame of thinking of how small a shoe can I manage to get on my foot to how big a shoe can I get away with? 
I like that. Yeah, I, I definitely want to echo that. I've, I've, I think personally, I'm still on the side, like, because I'm figuring that out as well. Um, and and luckily, I'm sponsored, so I can have free realm to trying all sorts of shoes and stuff. And the beauty in that, yeah, Tim, you douchebag, you're sponsored, you can try it, whatever. Now, the beauty in that is that I I can actually try and experiment a little bit more uh, more freely, and and it helps because there's so much variety there, and it is impossible to know exactly which shoe and what size you want because each shoe even so i wore las sportivas and i'll change between squamas solution comps men's and women's theories mantras and uh they're all like quarter size differences it's really annoying you know like i'll, I'll get i wear a 38 which is a very small shoe and uh in squamas i'll wear a 37 and a half but they feel That's like a 37 small, and three quarters very, Tim, very small. Tim, yeah, you're, very, you're, uh, six, you're like a six foot tall dude and you're wearing that. Like I dude, myself <laughs> is wearing small. I think I'm like 30. I think I went from 38 and a half and now I'm up to 39 and a half. Okay. Yeah. That's actually like still pretty small. Or, I mean, I, yeah. I, I wear an eight and a half street shoe uh, in almost every type, type of street shoe. So it's pretty standard. Um, and by the way, for you guys who don't wear Las Bertibas, Las Bertiba does size down quite a bit, uh, like quite a bit more than other shoe companies. So in other shoe companies, I'll wear like a seven or seven and a half. Like in Bitora, I was wearing like a seven or seven and a half, but I think 38 translates to like a six, which is like two and a half sizes down from my street shoe, which is just not accurate. But, you know, I'll wear, I'll wear a range of 37 and a half to 39 in Las Portivas. And just based on what I like, you know, what it feels, what it's good for, what it's bad for. And I just bought a pair of half a size bigger solution comps that I think I immediately didn't like. Uh, like I immediately were like, okay, these are too big. And so I'm learning kind of like what I can get away with, but they're not even broken in yet. And so I, I, I echo that concept though, where my squamas, I definitely got, because I had to wear 37 and a half, they were like a quarter size too small. And those ones, I would rather have a quarter size too big. And those ones that were very, very obvious to me. And the biggest thing that I noticed was that when my toes were like knuckled up and scrunched in a box, I couldn't really feel the flexion of my toe, you know, very often. And so I don't think that was ineffective on like granite climbing. I don't think it was ineffective outdoors most of the time, but it's ineffective in learning in the gym. Because I think in the gym, I've taught myself that you can, you can really teach yourself how to flex your toes more and be more you know precise and I don't know move your feet around quite a bit more in the gym. And if your, your toes are too tight and too scrunched up, you can't do that very well. You don't want to do that on tiny, tiny granite gyms. You don't want to do that on like really small feet, but you do want to do that on like big jugs or like slopers or, you know, more involved aggressive movements. And so it's kind of the allowance of teaching for me was the biggest thing I noticed about getting my shoes a little bit bigger. But great why, why are climbing shoes and their sizes just have no relation to <laughs> normal size? I have a, it's yeah, so I'm an eight and a half or a nine in street shoe also. And I don't know what my loss were. Yeah. Seven, seven, just they, I don't think of, it's one of the reasons why I like using the European sizes for climbing shoes, because it just completely divorces the, the comparison to the American yeah. sizes that I'm used to. So I just, I, I don't even care what it translates to. It's, it's a climbing shoe. It has nothing to do with real uh, street shoes. Totally. So uh, I, I just think yeah, that's, go ahead, go ahead. You know, it's funny is when I was third, so I started climbing when I was 13 and I was four foot 11 and 70 pounds, very small person. And by the end of my first year climbing, so when I was by the end of my, you know, when I was 14, I was five, eight and 120 pounds. So I gained, you know, like nine inches and 50 pounds. I had, a, I didn't oh have growth God. spur. I don't have any stretch marks or anything on my back. I just grew an inch a month. I literally just grew an inch a month for like eight, nine months straight. And I was like, I was so tall from like, I was so rapidly growing. I would miss the, the door handle. Like occasionally I would like reach down for the door handle and be like, what the hell? I'd be right above it. And I'd be like, what? Like, that's so weird. And like the sink looked far away and stuff. 
But so I wore a, a 38 as my first climbing shoe size when I bought my first climbing shoes, which was within a th- my first year. And that never changed. And so my 38s have literally been the size of climbing shoe I've worn since I was 13. And so I think it's kind of like that, that old like Chinese method of like restricting your shoes and like getting your really, really small <laughs> shoes. Or, like girls did that yeah. way back in the day. And it keeps your feet small. It totally keeps your feet small, like just to keep your feet restricted in that way. And so I think my feet would have grown a bit more because <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of tall and I feel actually out of balance a lot. Like I associate my balance, my imbalance issues to like my smaller feet. Uh, but it helps with slabs, like slabs. It's kind of nice to be like, I don't know, really, really close to the wall. Um, like it's, it's good for heel hooks and stuff. Like I, I look at like Brennan, <laughs> Brennan's got like huge feet. And when I climb with Brennan a lot, I'm like, damn, like, how do you step on stuff? Actually, some slabs are easier for him because his leverage points are different. It's just some, it's something funny that, it, that I thought was interesting. Do feet binding. Yeah, great. Uh, I think it's, <laughs> it, it is hilarious how kids will have these growth spurts. I, I see it in my, in my little kids where they will grow all of a sudden and then they're just uncoordinated. Like they trip over and fall. I think that's kind of interesting. All right. Last yeah. thing on, on a trip down memory lane with shoes. Here was how obsessed I was with small shoes. And I was a little kid too. And I remember ordering size three and a half Anasazi lace-ups and Anasazi lace-ups were like the shoes. So this is like 1995 or something. Well, this dude, they're like, I mean, they were amazing back then and they've changed a little bit, but they were, probably the best shoe on the market at the time. And they were expensive. They were probably like 120 mm. bucks back then, which was a lot of money, especially for you know a 10 year old or something. And this was also a time where you couldn't really just go and buy shoes. And especially you know who has size three and a half. And so my gym had to order them for me. And then, so there's no returns. So I get these shoes and I'd probably grown in the time since ordering them. And I remember trying to break them in their leather. I would put them on and then sit my feet in a bowl of hot water to try to get them to stretch. <laughs> and I, you know, just, this is how the, the lengths to which I went for small shoes. And so this is where, I don't know, just kind of coming at it from a different standpoint is really hard for me because I, that, you know, that was like, that's like 30 years ago. And, you know, that's how I thought. And now I'm, you know, again, th- this is the nuance where I was trying to bring is it doesn't mean go get big floppy shoes. It means what if you could go a half size up and have the, the same performance? And what does that mean? Maybe there, maybe there's better performance. I, I, I don't know. It's something I'm playing around with, but I know that uh, it does lead to higher instances of ankle injuries when you're really, you can't really land correctly when you have your feet just, you know, clamped down. So, okay. Uh, totally. Let, let's, that's enough shoe talk. Uh, Tim, do you want to start, uh, you want to do a pro tip or should we just go right into the? Yeah, I have a quick pro tip. Uh, it's not related to the concept of what we're talking about either. Um, but, and this actually may be a pro tip that I've said in the past, but now we've so many episodes, I'm not really sure, but I added another layer to it, uh, in case I've said it in the past. And it's wait, just Tim, wait, tip. did I do that big shoe as a pro tip at some point? Have you heard me say this? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. Maybe. Well, I apologize if maybe, I did. Maybe. Uh, yeah. God, that'd be embarrassing. Yeah. Okay. Well, sorry. <laughs> now that we know about the, the Spotify rap, maybe, maybe people do listen to every single episode, but I, I imagine that not every listener listens to every episode. So I think it's fine to repeat okay. some pro tips, okay. but so this one might be a repeat as well, but uh, read thumb truck, read thumb truck when you're sequencing roots or just looking at things or really quickly looking at things. So this actually, it's funny, it's funny that one time, a long time ago, I remember watching a video that Epic TV put out. Matt Groom was, I think it was Matt Groom or the other guy. They were, 
talking with Adam Andre, and I think he was doing some onsites or something. I don't remember the context, but he was talking about thumb chalk. And I remember being so flabbergasted. And don't feel bad if you know you don't know what thumb chalk, you know, in the re- in context of reading is. For me, it was like so given that I was like, whole, you know, Adam was basically like, yeah. And I look at like where the thumb chalk is to know which hand I go with. And the the other guy who was you know. Re- interviewing him was like oh my god and i was like what oh my god what like that's so obvious like you should always look at the thumb chalk right and i was like oh interesting so this is not a given and i was coached i was coached to read it uh you know i I definitely remember being coached to read it in competitions you know because you only have a couple of minutes to read these quote-unquote on-site attempts in in lead or anything and so the quickest way to read which hand you might want in whatever orientation is the thumb chalk because that's the average and in competitions it's much more of a given because the route setters do do what they want to be intended but even outdoors even outdoors i'll see quite a bit of thumb chalk here's a caveat here more advanced more advanced readers of climbing can see which thumb chalks are more likely accurate because sometimes it is just the chalk so i do make a note there that of course sometimes there's just chalk on the wall but on average, you're going to see chalk that is more trafficked and more traffic beta is probably more optimal. And so especially in the gym, if you want to quickly read things, just read the thumb chalk and it'll give you a really good understanding of what hand's supposed to go where. And especially when there's cross moves and stuff, if you're like, huh, I wonder, I wonder, because if it looks close, right? Sometimes it looks close where you're like, oh, I don't know if I want my left or right. The thumb chalk will tell you probably where you want it. Um, Damn. I have an, I have another note. Hold sorry, on, secondary hold on, dude, no, you, that is so right, go for good. It, go for you it. have not said that before. And I think I'm that <laughs> really, I'm that chuffer cameraman. That's <laughs> like, whoa, uh, that's good. I, when you said thumb chalk, I was like, yeah, yeah, dude. I mean, you look for where you might want to pinch the hole. You look for if that crimp could be a pinch, you look for other options, of course, but the idea of using it to help sequence an onsite, I, I don't know if I, really i i mean maybe i'm doing some of that internally but i don't know man that that mm. that's cool making that explicit i i that's that's a yeah. good pro tip dog that, i i or maybe There's i just suck i don't know i like more... it <laughs> that's great no okay that's that's great i mean like, like i said i was taught and coached i was literally told that to do that and it would just be and very very early on in my climbing and it became a part of my sequencing and i think i take sequencing more deeply than even most competitive rock climbers do and so the, what I've learned and you know, maybe we'll do a podcast on this or like something, um, deeper because what I've learned is like, this is, so before we started recording, I was telling Josh that there's like so much more the experts in rock climbing, like a lot of pros feel, they feel the mastery a lot more than they know the mastery. And so, you know, the podcast has really taught me to look inside what I feel and regurgitate it into words. It's really difficult. And so I think I know a lot more on my actual climbing than I, you know, feel I know when I'm talking about it. And this is one aspect is sequencing. And when I look at climbing holds in the, in the gym and stuff. So it's funny. Um, I, I come off as like arrogant and like douchey to, you know, like maybe not as advanced climbers, just because of how I talk about climbing. You know, I, I'll notice that in myself, especially with dating Michaela, who's been climbing for two years and she's very advanced for, for you two year rock climber. Um, and unfortunately she just hurt herself by the mm. way. I hope she gets better soon. Bummer. Um, but you know, when, when she'll like ask me, uh, for example, you know, she'll, she'll, she'll watch me climb a lot and you know, I'll like do my beta whatever. And she's like, uh, <laughs> we've learned how to talk about, we've learned how to communicate with this because, you know, early on I was not, I was like quicker with her, but she would suggest, she would be like, you know, why don't you grab it this way? Why don't you do that? And I'm like, no. Nah it's so quickly and just so brutal and cold. I'd be like, nah, I'm not even here to explain that to you, but that is obviously not going to work. And the way that I usually know that is orientation of chalk, orientation of 
the formity of handholds and like features and stuff like that. If you start paying attention to exactly what your palms and your thumbs and your fingers can and should do in specific formities of rock or holds, and especially in the gym with the whole, the creation of new holds is literally, you know, it's infinitely scalable and rapid. You are always going to grab a new hold in competition. You have to know what your body should and can and want to do in specific positions and specific orientations. And chalk is for me, the easiest way to read that. And a you know, I, I was that kid, you know, not reading around a rats, not reading like the thumbs on volumes to find jibs. Like if you see, if you can't see holds on volumes, but you see a thumb mark, there's probably something on the other side of that volume because it's not, you can grab a volume on all points. It's not like if you see just one dot of thumb, it's probably because there's a jib on the other side of that. And almost always I'm correct in there when I'm looking at a volume and I see thumb chalk, there's probably a jib on the other side because otherwise you would just grab it wherever you would want to grab it. Right. The volume's infinitely grabbable. Dude. Uh, um, real quick. I just, because I think it's kind of fun to actually show the other side of things that I often, I, I mean, I've struggled with this too, but I see an issue with people who've spent a lot of time in the gym and not as much time out doors, especially on climbs that are more feature oriented, maybe blocky or granite is understanding how to spot features that don't have chalk on them, but can be used as holds. So oftentimes you'll look at a red totally. and you'll see like a bunch of chalk and you'll see people like, Oh, okay. I'm going to grab this array at that chalk, but then you'll see really ag- advanced climbers. Maybe they're shorter and they'll use the red like eight times on the way to the next hold or they'll just reach out and find balance from, from some feature, some, not a rep, but you know, when you like, there's like kind of like a roof and you can almost pinch the the roof, mm-hmm. uh, I, too hard to describe on a podcast, but noticing that there are almost, yeah, again, there's an infinite amount of holds and you'll see this in people when you saw volume start to be part of the, the route setting meta just being able to grab the volumes. And I'm guilty for when that first started coming up, I didn't use the volumes. I said, you know, where's the, where's the hold on the volume? And just, you know, so yes, look for chalk, but also expand your movement and understanding and different rock ties to recognize that there is maybe, there's maybe holds right in front of you that you can use, maybe not as your primary grip, but maybe you can use that as a bump hold or something that doesn't have chalk on it. So I don't know, just, just give me a crap on the other side of the spectrum. That's a really good caveat. I mean, I think again, I only use chalk as a kind of the first layer and everything beyond that first layer. I think about the movement, the theory, like why I should lean this way, why I should then do this, or where's my feet? Like what, what feet allow me to do what, what do I want to do with the move? And the thumb chalk is just one layer. And I think it should be kept as one layer because there's more depth found in other ways. Um, Another part to this pro tip is read rubber too. Uh, Outdoors, especially uh, rubber usually means the optimal foot, especially if you climb in like rifle, (laughs) you know, if you climb in rifle and you see this like horrible, greasy, rubbery thing, it's probably just the best foot. It's, It's just probably in the best position. It's probably the smartest thing to use, but you know, there's a lot of little rubber marks that are going to be smears that maybe aren't actually footholds. And you, you'll see these like huge rubber streaks and, you know, big rubbery marks and stuff. That's like, that's not a foothold. It's like, well, step on it. It's going to help you, you know, and, you'll, and then learn why it helps you. Uh, in the gym, look for effective smears. There's so many volumes and features. And like what I see, I look for rubber on the tops and backs of holds, like on the, the back, you know, where you can't actually grab the hold by your hand. But on the other side of it, there's usually probably rubber on it. Uh, if, if the move, allows you to do that. And so looking for that rubber will help you kind of guide. And so when I climb in the gym, I think I'm kind of known for climbing pretty quickly. 
And I'm not reading everything, but I'm mostly reading those two things is thumb chalk and rubber. <laughs> and I can move usually pretty accurately to the most optimal sequences. Uh, and, and otherwise, my intuition just kind of kicks in and makes smarter decisions to adapt. This reminds me of an experience I had in Kalemnos a few years ago. And I was climbing, I was, I was on-siding something that wasn't crazy hard. It was probably like a 12C or something, but it was 50 meters. Just this classic Kalimnos. It was on the panorama wall. Dude, by the way, Kalimnos, amazing. You should go there, Tim. And it's limestone and limestone gets polished. So you can really see those boot rubber marks. So uh, the climb I was on was an extension and I'm up there and I'm just pumped. Like I, I am just pumped down my mind. I am not in sport climbing shape. I've been on the moon board and this is, you know, 50 meters of overhanging tufas. So I'm cruising along and I get to kind of what seems like the crux, just, just my hunch, but I'm pumped and I don't want to, I want to try hard. And I look down and I see a foot and it's like higher than I want it to be. And I see the other foot. It's really far out there. It's that cool, like two foot 3d climbing where what it really is, is it's almost like stemming, you know? And I just know from boot rubber, like that's the foot for the move. And I just get up on those feet and I just commit to it. And the move just goes perfectly and beautifully. And I onsite the route. And it's just this interesting thing where, you know, maybe this isn't you know, super high level climbing where it's like the best pro tip ever, but sometimes just when you're onsiting and, and cruising around, just, yeah, be aware of, you know, is that super pure onsite or not? I, I don't care. Just, Look at those holds, see what they're telling you. And oftentimes you're right. The most trafficked stuff is the best beta or is quote unquote, it's, it's more likely to be very good beta, we'll say. And then you just commit to it. And it's, it's something that I often would, would show my, my girlfriend or wife at the time or <laughs> wife now, uh, is like, wh where's all the chalk? Like, wh where are your feet? Like, and, cause I would always joke cause she got brought up in the climbing gym and got, strong quickly. And then we'd take her outside and kind of marionette her. And I would always joke, like if I put tape on the the wall, you would climb two grades harder. But in some ways there is tape on well-trafficked climbs. That's the foot. That's the foot. Like, oh, it's too high. I know it's too high, but that is the foot. Commit. Um, so yeah, love it. Love it, dude. That yeah. was fun. Love it. Love it. Um, okay. Can we jump into this wonderful topic yes. of the day? Yes. And I, I'm I, gonna... I have a... <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. Uh, I, I just want to preface this a little bit. So our topic of the day is about the learning mindset and oh, I think we're going to call it the effort mindset. And I, I don't want us to come across here and say, these are all the possible mindsets. This is the exact breakdown of how to climb hard. This is just two modes or, or two mindsets that me and Tim have talked about before. And we really want to make a clear delineation between the two. And we think it will help you tackle hard climbs is understanding when to be in the learning line, mindset, when to stand, when to understand, when to be in the effort mindset and how they're related and how they come together. And so, you know, I'll, I'll hand it back to you there, Tim, but I just don't want this to come across as like, this is the Bible for climbing hard. This is everything. It's just, this is one way that Tim and I approach climbing have noticed in climbing and, and, you know, actually to bring it back to something you said around feeling versus talking about, and you, you use the word, Tim, you said, I feel things and then having to regurgitate it for the podcast. So regurgitate <laughs> basically means throw up. That's why I like to use the word 
articulate. And articulating means to turn something into words. And, and it is very difficult. And it is what we enjoy here is it's so tempting to talk about climbing in very concrete terms of grades or finger training or quote unquote strength or quote unquote technique and having to articulate the infinite nuances of climbing is what what we all really actually are doing and enjoying when we're out together and talking about and so anyways uh, i've learned a lot from having to articulate my feelings and this is something that we are noticing that we are going to articulate and break out but i don't want people to mistake this for being like this is all there is in climbing these are the only mindsets that exist this is just a tool that both tim and i have used and understood it and are making apparent or making or articulating. Yeah. Okay. I'm lost him. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I couldn't do this without you, man. I think, I think you do a really good job of kind of balancing my, uh, cause I think my attempt is to regurgitate things that I already feel and articulate, I do, Tim, I do, articulate, I do articulate them. Okay. <laughs> no, but I naturally, I naturally just like you know, obstacle regurgitation mode, but articulation is like what I try to do, but you're so good at the articulation and, um, yeah, I'm learning a lot, but also I have these like deep theory concepts that do matter to me a lot. And, you know, I think amount or have amounted to, you know, quote unquote success or probably failure. And, you know, kind of trying to help you guys not run into the same pitfalls that Josh and I both run into regularly still. And, you know, things that I'm like, these are the things that if you had told me before I started climbing, I actually would appreciate and I would like to hear. And so that's what we're attempting to do. Um, but yes, good. All good caveats. It's not, this is not the, you know, the whole gold mine and mindset is not what we're talking about. Uh, and I actually, this will help. Uh, I titled this whole podcast, you know, section, how to conduct in climbing. Because we talked about it uh, when we oh, were talking yeah, about this I topic, that. I was, that was fun. I was, I was asking you like, who's the who's the guy who uh, in music in like orchestras? Who's the guy in the front like holding the stick? You know, and he's like, oh, the conductor. And I was like, oh, great. Okay, think of you and your brain as the conductor for this orchestra that is your body. You are responsible for knowing theory, whether that's visually or by feel, handling rhythm and flow. You know, it's pacing, rev control, aggression, and essentially making all of the little and big choices. So you are the conductor for the orchestra that is your body and we're climbing, right? That's, that's, that's how I view it. And, uh, and the reason why we talked about this, like I said before, was kind of, well, actually we we're talking about Ethan Salvo talking about the learning mindset and the beauty of it. Nathaniel Coleman talked about the beauty of that kind of awareness and learning mindset as well. And of course, these two climbers have aspects of learning mindset and the effort mindset, which I also call the aggressive and the committed mindset, um, which so then you can kind of see why why those are kind of related. Oh, I like committed, um, yeah. And That's again, mm -hmm. and I see Jesse Gruper, uh, we just had him on the podcast as well. And I think a lot of his mindsets do go back and forth in between the two. But we obviously value in certain instances, the learning mindset and in certain instances, we don't value the learning mindset, which means we go kind of go hand in hand, they, they kind of go opposite in mindsets. And uh, I'll just go ahead and define quickly what I think the these two mindsets actually feel and you know what I, I view these mindsets are. So the learning mindset is when we evaluate as we go. This way, we can truly be aware of theory that is right and wrong, better and worse. Uh, we're allowed to make choices on the wall, but this heavily depends on your internal and external stamina. Uh, and so your internal, this kind of, this kind of just came from talking to Jesse is internal stamina was basically his willingness to make the correct choice and actually associate that to 
objective and rational choices, not so much the, cho- the choices that he just feels is right and wrong, because those are often incorrect. Um, and then the external stamina, the actual ability to have endurance and be on the wall. That's kind of where we're allowed to make those choices, uh, given that those internal and external stamina are high. And so I kind of make a, a parenthesis here that this must be greatly improved in order to increase your ability as a conductor, given that you're staying in a learning mindset. And I do, do value personally, you know, given given this concept, I think the, the learning mindset is what I have taught myself to try to implement more often because it's actually harder. The effort mindset or the aggressive and committed mindset is when we choose to have more certainty and we focus more on the mechanics and the effort of a singular sequence or a singular movement, generally much more likely to get our potential ability to show, but choosing optimal paths relies on a strong theory and quick adaptations, right? So it's it's a given that your depth of understanding is there in order to actually have this effort and committed mindset to be more effective. Yeah, yeah, I, I want to, th- those are great uh, definitions. Uh, I want to bring up the idea of conductor again, because it is this really important thing uh, about just how you approach climbing. And I'm going to actually pull it back to where I was, uh, I was recognizing the language I was using around being old or uh, whatever the, the negative talk is. And, and see, that's yeah. not the conductor. The conductor is the person who says, Hey, Hey, uh, whiner over in the orchestra complaining about being old or whatever, you need to like, you turn it down, turn it down. Like we need to hear this other yeah. part, you, you know? And so I just love that. Like, who are you as a climber? And, and this is where we were talking about, I'm even going to liken it to ravioli biceps and how we, we all think of ravioli biceps as a good climber. And yes, he's, we, we talk about his moonboarding achievements, but I would argue that you could probably take the same amount of effort that he put into the moon board and apply it to a different kind of climbing and that he would excel in that as well. And so this is where you can still be impressed by people's climbing, even if it's in a narrow area, when you understand the approach that they're taking towards mastery. And that's that conductor we're talking about. So that isn't really what the whole podcast is supposed to be about, but I just, that conductor. Yeah. That's good, man. Um, yeah, Sorry, let, you me, want to actually, let me go, go, go for back it, go for it. more yeah, layers yeah. to that. Yeah, because a conductor is is great to think about, you know, and that's really all we should be thinking about in terms of what we're controlling. But I like what Josh is saying there. Be aware of your orchestra. Be aware of the strengths and the weaknesses that your orchestra has. And I do mean strengths and weaknesses. The strengths can be blinding as well. If your orchestra contains this one guitarist who's just amazing, but your brass and your percussion and everyone's just behind you're only going to be as you're only going to be as good as everybody sounds like, you know, like you're going to have to control and understand like, hey, lead guitarist, you can't take every solo, you can't take every lead on, right? And so you have to understand the strengths that are blinding to you, which is exactly why Josh always says don't major in the minors. So if you're under, if you're not understanding yet what this orchestra and conductor means, that's what I'm talking about. The orchestra is your styles. It's all the the strengths and weaknesses physically that you have, internal things, right? The the language, the self-talk, the old man self-talk in the back where it's like, no, man, you're way <laughs> hey, too old, old man, for that. Whatever. Up. Turn off <laughs> That's your, your orchestra. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. The reason why I'm <laughs> yeah. just cracking up and making it hard for you to, to give this great analogy is anyone who knows anything about music is going to be horrified. Uh, there. Tim, I don't think there's any guitarists in uh, in orchestra. I, I think maybe the strings or the, the wind instrument. You're talking. You're, this is not Metallica. This is just uh, an orchestra, like conductors. Uh, this is old school. Wait, and, no. I watched I watched like, a movie um, called August Rush 
where the, the whole movie is about this kid who becomes a, compo- a conductor and there's totally a guitar that he composes or he conducts in this entire orchestra. And you're right in that it's probably rare, <laughs> but I just thought it was fascinating. I was like, I did. I've seen one. I've all seen right, one. Well, this is even more embarrassing because I really don't know what I'm talking about. I could, I'm just, I'm all percussion dog. I'm just, I'm a hundred percent percussion. Really? Uh, no, I have no idea. I am a guitarist. That's, just, that's so. my, that's my, yeah. when I think of what am I as a climber, I identify oh. as, as the symbols, <laughs> just one real try hard, just, just boom. Just, that's all I got. Uh, that's why I'm on the moon board uh, and complaining about those long endurance <laughs> climbs in, in Columbus. Okay, Tim. Uh, well, part of the, part of the orchestra is the effort mindset and the, oh, wait, wait, I was going to say the learning mindset and then effort mindset or the aggressive mindset or the commit mindset, all of those are kind of wound into this, whatever we want to call it. I, I like committed mindset, actually. The conductor. I, I, the, uh, mm-hmm. No, 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 Tim. No, the con- yeah, they're all under the conductor. I, that's why it, within mm-hmm. your orchestra, these are different areas that you can apply. There's the learning mindset and there's the committed mindset. I think committed sounds better than effort to me. Because that, sure. Uh, and so my, my definition, or actually, before I say that the definition, I think one of the reasons why we wanted to bring this up is that we have been talking about the learning mindset quite a bit in the podcast. And, you know, Ethan Salvo talked a lot about it. And when I brought it up with Tim, he just really wanted to point out like, Hey, there, there's more going on than the learning mindset, right? Like that, that, that is an important part, but let's face it. If you just get stuck in this loop of like, Oh, like, you know, can I get the hold a little bit better? Or what's this body position telling me? Then you never try. Then you never try hard. And and if you and this is where I think about the effort mindset or, or the committed mindset, I should say, is this is just like this is maybe this is maybe the the more of the bedrock. In some ways, I'd rather see people just hang it out there and try as hard as they can with crappy beta than spend all day on the ground mm-hmm. trying to get the best beta and trying to refine the nuances and never really trying hard. But they go hand in hand because what you often want to do is you come up with something that you think may work. You, you, you're sitting there on the, on the wall, you're finding some minute beta or you're, you're trying, you're thinking, maybe this is actually a drop knee. But then you can never really find out unless you commit to those mechanics, like you were saying, commit to that try hard and really embrace it. And I, I think even in that example, that shows you what the committed mindset is and what it how it's so different is it is that moment where you show up and put it all out there with the the beta in mind that you are learning from during that <laughs> during that learning mindset man i'm getting all mixed up with my words but that that that's it i'm going i'm going to hand it back to you because uh, yeah. i i think that showcases how i think about the two different ones I'm going to repeat something you just said, because I think it really encapsulates the importance of this topic. Because, you know, we, we can talk about this for, we're going to talk about this for like an hour. And so you guys can get lost, but here's the most important part. We really do believe, Josh and I, most expert climbers, I think most expert coaches really do believe that what I would like to see, you know, it, this all being said, you know, there's strengths and weaknesses, pros and cons about the learning mindset, but we talk about the learning mindset and the value of it. But at the end of the day, what we really want to see is everybody just tries really hard, even if it's wrong, you know, because you can spend year after year on the same project looking for the perfect beta. But when push comes to shove and you pull on, if you're not actually committed and you're not trying hard, is that really an attempt? 
Is that really an attempt? That's that's really, I think, like the core of that kind of effort committed mindset that I'm talking about is that are you even really giving attempts? You know, but on the other side of that, in between attempts and during those attempts, do you have an opportunity to learn anymore? Do you do you even know why you're doing that handhold or that foothold or why something might be better or worse? You do you even know that theory. And so I just wanted to repeat what you said there, which is we would rather see people do the wrong thing as long as they're really committed, because that's how you're going to actually have more of an effective experience and learn. And I have said that exact statement in almost every coaching session that I've had. I actually, I say it regularly to Michaela all the time. And that goes to show you how difficult it is to check yourself and realize that you're sometimes not in that mindset. And I'll give you guys a couple of practical things to see when you're not seeing, you know, when you're how to assess yourself and see whether you're too leaning too hard one way or another, but we have got quite a bit of conversation here. And, but I do want to make that note really clear. You know, we'd rather do the wrong thing. You know, we'd rather do the wrong thing with the most committed mindset. Well, and, and, and look at that example I gave on that onside of that sport climb is where I saw, I spied the feet that had a lot of boot rubber. Was that the best right. way for me to do the move? I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't go back and try a different way, but I just said, oh, okay. It's like this. And I commit, it was, it was a bit of a drop knee and, and I just really committed to it. And I just did the move. And actually I'll interrupt you. Mm -hmm. You're because your, your original opinion of that was what? Not so great. Yeah. I I didn't like it. Yeah. So your original opinion was actually not so good. And that was the learning mindset, the learning mindset, being aware and actually making, you know, your rational quote unquote rational thought. Those are subjective thoughts. You know, you're not actually being rational. You're not. And that's what you have to notice is, and that's, that's kind of why we started with me kind of picking on Josh's words saying, a oh, learning mindset is so good. So, you know, it encapsulates every, I'm like, no, it doesn't. It, it actually can hinder us, right? Because, and the, the smarter you are and the more experienced you are in climbing, this is exactly what I said to Josh about, um, I forget the name of this climb, eminently climbable. Eminently climbable, yep. That you're talking about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Eminently climbable. Um, in this specific case, you know, Josh was talking about kind of his pitfalls and I was like, no, I think your actual pitfall was that you stopped believing that you could even do this damn move. So you stopped even trying to do the damn move. And he was like, Ah, yeah, (laughs) we don't even realize, we don't even realize how much of these pitfalls. So going to that uh, example in Kalimnos, and that's exactly what happened. You looked at this foot, you had a negative opinion, but you decided to go straight for that commitment mindset instead. And that was more powerful and that was more effective. And that's just your ability as a climber to be able to choose which, which might be more effective, but that's on what grade was that climb? Like 12 C or something. Yeah. Like mid five, 12. And so as that scales, you're going to listen more and more to that learning mindset. You're going to listen more and more to that negative bias that you have. And that's just for everybody. Everybody's going to listen more and more to that. That's how I view hard climbing, especially on ropes, especially on ropes. People aren't climbing near their potential, mostly because they're not very in tune with what they're actually capable of and what they ask themselves to do. And that's what Jesse Grouper was really, really good at is seeing what he's capable of, which is way beyond what I think people even are capable of, which is much better. You want to shoot for the stars and assuming that your body's capable of more and then you just direct your, you conduct your orchestra to do that. <laughs> uh, and I, I just, you know, when we talk about these mindsets, um, I always like doing this, this macro and micro. I just want to point out that in that example of on-siting that sport climbing Kalimnos, in some ways I had a moment of doing like the learning mindset. I'm like, okay, like, I'm not sure what to do here. You know, you maybe have a moment where you go, like, okay, uh, you know, is this hold better? Should I take it like an undercling? Where am I going? But then when I saw those feet, I just quickly made a decision and went for it. And this is where, and, and come in and switch to just execution. Okay, this is the beta that I'm choosing for this moment and I'm going for 100%. Like no, no messing around. And so 
we can also talk about our whole sessions where we spend all this time, you know, like dialing, like, is this where I want to hold the crystal? And, uh, and you know, like what percentage of your session is that? And, and we'll get into maybe, maybe you have some practical tips on to both identifying how you, you know, where you lean and then maybe when to employ which, but I just wanted to show that it can be like a really quick mindset shift too. Uh, and one right. little just side pro tip. And I just, this is just, this is probably, I, I think you'll, uh, you'll like these. If you're newer in climbing, especially in sport climbing, the higher your, your feet should go higher than you think they should. Like just as like a general rule of thumb, you hike your feet higher than you think. And I would say often as you get better at climbing, as you get into the higher grades, oftentimes it's like the opposite where use lower feet and have that tension and get stretched out. And yes, it's hard. You just, those are super, super broad brushstrokes, but one of my better tips for people, I, I'm not even going to pick the grade. Hopefully you just know, use, I know that foot looks high. That's probably the right foot. And then in harder climbing, I know that foot looks low and you're going to have a hard time keeping tension. That's the foot. Anyways. Yeah. Tension. Actually for, I do have grades literally until like 13 B that usually matters. And like, it seems like 13 C and above, then you got to start to, dissect why you want a closer foot or a further foot but like pretty for me pretty much anything 13 being under i'm almost all my feet are as high as they can be because it presets the the next positions a lot more effectively and it just gives you more option for like how to create movements it might be more com uncomfortable and it might be less efficient to do each movement but again your, your goal dog is not to do every move perfectly your goal is to do every move you know and so it, you can perfect yourself over time and make small adjustments to perfect yourself but okay this will help us transition into uh common leaks and then optimal execution i think of the mixture of these two mindsets and uh this is not necessarily just common leaks but kind of there's thoughts that i have in this realm of where i see you know the pitfalls of either mindset and whatnot uh it's something that i said before but understanding your personal tendencies will help you understand which mindset or which mindset style that you can lean. So everybody that I've coached or climbed with, I already see they naturally lean one way or another. And I used to classify that as like the types of people that they were, you know, like engineers or like more artist type people or like creators and actually it does end up being that way. Um, in terms of, you know, where do you lean? Do you lean to be just more committed and you think a lot less or do you just think way too much and you just never commit, right? And you you know, you as climbers, whoever's listening, you should start thinking about that for yourself. Wh which way do you lean? Because you're going to do both. Like I said, you, everyone does a bit of both, but people definitely lean too hard one way. Josh and I, we both lean way too hard in the thinking mindset very often. We're really quick and easy, and we're very confident in going for the committed mindset. We've taught ourselves that. But honestly, when we get into the minutia and we're less confident, when we don't have that prerequisite of confidence, I know that him and I both go way deep in like thinking about making things perfect, and, and then that can just get in the way of, of trying really hard. And I had to be taught this uh, by Justin Strong, actually. And he he really helped me out of this this mindset. And, you know, pretty much since then, I've taught myself the opposite way. And it works really, really well. I just, I know that my body naturally, and my mind naturally leans towards this learning mindset. So I almost always climb with a committed mindset now. I, I almost never lean into the learning mindset because I just know it's there. It's just, I just can never escape it. Um, most people seem to jump back and forth, but rarely mix the two during singular attempts. And again, that's really difficult. And I'll go into the practical of how to practice that and how I've practiced that. But I'm just kind of making a statement there. And you should, you guys should real, everybody should realize that people rarely mix the two in the, during the same attempt. And that's possible. Leaning too hard one way. And I, so I guess I'll go into why, why it's not so good to lean uh, 
one way. Leaning too hard one way for a long time can create gaps, can create gaps in your theory or ability to perform consistently. Uh, you can create a, and there you go. Josh is eminently climbable. Just seeing the difference in how he feels about a V10 to V14, that's a huge gray disparity, right? But it's real and it's true. He, he, but he really feels like they're close and great. And that's, that's why, because he's leaning too hard one way in, 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 in just that one style of climbing. You can create a bias and an understanding that may not be true. And this is kind of where I bring up Josh's story. And that mostly happened because the, based on previous experiences and the combination of a learning mindset, he was unable to give 100% effort, focus, and thinking and clarity, right? There was no clarity in terms of his approach. If I, if I took Josh's body and I put it into a new climber where he had no experience of what, of climbs whatsoever, but I gave him his body and his technique and, it, you, know, what, you know, however that would work. And then I put him in front of eminently climbable, he'd probably have a better time. I would all, almost have certainty that he would have better time, it's be more true. successful, less negative, and just go for 100%, you know, because it's like, it's just a challenge, dog. It's just a challenge of climbing. Maybe he would give me an inaccurate grade reading afterward. He'd be like, ah, it's V12. <laughs> and I see that all the time. And that's also why grades are back and forth and wrong and, and whatever, because people don't realize their personal biases and what's actually quote unquote difficult or something they're actually just bad at. Um, ego death. This is where ego death is, is really a, a truth, you know? Yeah, I want I want to Go jump in it. here because it's something that just you know as I reflect on my experience and I said this to you where I never blew off of a hold like they were they were small holds and yeah. you know on just a of a slightly overhanging wall and this is kind of my my weakness uh, you know objectively not even just me uh, you know what is it uh, laying my negative orchestra person take over. It's an actual weakness of mine. And yeah, I never blew off a hold. And what I was thinking about too, is oftentimes you see someone do something and, you know, maybe it is in, in their quote unquote style and they, and they do it well, but what you don't realize is how hard they're actually trying. And people see me do things in my style and they'll be like, wow, you know, that looks so easy. I'm like, dude, I was trying seriously hard there. I really put it all on the table and yes, it looked good. And so sometimes I, 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 you know, this is just me thinking out loud and learning as I'm you know, breaking this down with you is I recognize that what I wanted it to do, it, what I wanted that hold and that move to feel like is just easy, but it probably will yeah. never feel easy. And I was never willing to actually commit to it. And yeah, like I said, my hand never popped. And so how hard was I trying? I mean, not the hardest I can try. That that's for sure. I, I coming back away from it. That's for, although, you, you know, this is where it's it's interesting because when we to to I don't know if this is worth peeling the layer off, but there is an element of when you're projecting something, you have a certain amount of energy and skin, and so when you're in that learning mindset. You know, you're kind of like, is this going to work? Is this going to work? And you're kind of, you know, trying things at 30%, 40%. You know, mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I pull on and I go, no, this body position isn't right. No, no, no. I'm not even, even going to try the move. And then you say, okay, this is the bay I'm going to try. And then you give it 100%. And so it's funny how, like, how much do you balance these two mindsets, you know, based on right. skin and effort? And that's just, God, that's that's a whole nother layer. But anyways. No, that's, that is interesting that. though. And the... And so the other side of that, that would be interesting to peel back a layer of is competition because you don't have an opportunity to do that. You can never go up a ladder and feel holds. You can never make, you know, you have, you have four minutes in a bouldering round with no attempts and no information to figure it out and get it done, which is two completely different things is figuring out a climb and getting it done. 
and outside you can feel it and give less effort. It's a great pro tip, you know, like, yeah, maybe don't give hundred percent effort until your learning mindset has done its job, but sometimes effort is required to have a learning mindset, be a part of it. So it is a really interesting layer that you're talking about. Um, but yeah, all, all, all things interesting there. Uh, I'll just jump into the next little kind of leak that I, I see. And this will be kind of last one I talk about. But um, feelings can be built to be inaccurate, I think, is one of the biggest points to be made here, um, or at least biased from strong negative opinions or unsuccessful unsuccessful experiences. Um, you know, your your whole feeling about I love I love what you were just talking about in terms of, you know, you never fell like really like you never actually fell. You, you kind of just directed yourself to you kind of self-prophesized that you were failing because it didn't feel good and it didn't feel perfect. And that's just what you're used to doing in your style, which is a really like important leak to understand. It's a really important leak to peel back the layers of and understand as strong climbers. So this is one that, so here's an analogy that we all can understand, you know, like just because you're really, really, it's almost worse to be a strong CrossFit bro or like a really strong weightlifter or gymnast and go into climbing, right? Because you're preset understandings of what's successful or what's strength it gets in the way of listening to the climbing right it goes this goes hand in hand with all of our podcast things of how to listen and how to look at climbing theory how to break apart mechanics and actually how to do that stuff well if you're too strong buddy you're not going to learn that stuff right and so that's why i said earlier on that the stronger you are in climbing sometimes it makes it even harder in the mindsets actually i think it's the hardest place to go back and forth between mindsets because you're so sure you're so damn sure about other previous experiences, but we have to acknowledge that styles are completely different and that our strengths and weaknesses are probably, you know, bigger disparities than we think they are. And versus us telling the climb what we were supposed to do, we try 100% and we figure it out, right? I love this aspect of climbing, Josh. I, well, actually, I love going to the gym and just like dancing around, like getting things done because it's so easy to read general concepts in the gym. And it's actually a huge complaint of mine. You know, like, oh, woe is me, Tim, again, coming on where he's saying that he's just romping up all these gym boulders and never struggles. But hey, isn't that one aspect of climbing that we actually enjoy is falling and being like, like, why do I suck here? Like why? And that's not found for me in the gyms anymore. It's actually a huge issue. You know, when I go to B pump, I can do that on V6 there because it's not, it's not correlated to difficulty concepts. It's correlated to style concepts. That's exactly the point here, right? Is that I can hop on any grade of climb and I should be challenged in not exactly feeling confident or knowing exactly what general concept I'm supposed to, you know, um, start using to get me up the wall. And in, in American concepts, I see the same general concept used over and over and over and over and over and over again in the gyms. And therefore I can get up almost anything in the gyms here. And then I'll go to world cups overseas and struggle. I'm not really sure how to feel confident on that way, but that's not the point. The right, the point is to try really hard and then be aware afterward. Right. And that that's kind of where this whole leak that I'm talking about feelings can be built to be inaccurate. You know, it can be biased from strong negative or positive experiences and create or from unsuccessful experiences. It's your job to peel the layers and learn and then try, right? It's your, that's your job. Your job is to actually pay attention to what things are, you know, subjective. And, and that kind of goes into, and it's funny because my practical steps, one of them is to well, let's, see let your me, falls. Yeah. Let, before you go yeah, into yeah, go the ahead. practical steps, uh, I, I think I was that, going to, but yeah. Okay. The, the thing that got me was this concept of 
if someone was in my body, it wasn't me that they would have more success. And it kind of bothers me because you can just imagine, <laughs> well, well, I think about it this way. What if you put me in Daniel Woods's body and I wouldn't know, I'd be like, wow, like my fingers are really strong. It's like, oh, okay. I'm just going to like grab this hole. Like how hard can I grab it? Dude, I don't totally. know. Let's just try as hard as I can. Oh, I can just lock this off. And just this <laughs> idea of just committing to it with whatever you have, it, it kind of, I don't know. It just kind of got me. I was like, yeah, I, I, I actually agree that had someone else been my conductor, they probably would have had more success in that climb. That kind of bothers me. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I, and I, I want to go into, I, I want to go into maybe some more practical stuff and, and the idea of effort. And I, I like that you think that maybe I skew more towards learning, uh, but I probably, that may be a newer thing. I, I usually skewed more towards effort where I'm, I'm really good at just trying freaking hard. And I think that some of the, the podcast and some of getting older is, and us leaning in, or at least me picking more on this kind of learning mindset stuff is because it's an area that I have recognized I, I need to understand better and I, I need to be more open. And I, I, I enjoy that. That <laughs> I don't know if I get to romp around every gym and do every climb, but I will say that it feels very good to look at a climb, know what to do, and then just do it and just feel feel strong and good. So I don't know. Maybe I, yeah. I am one of those people, but anyways. Actually, so it, it is interesting. Sorry, on that note, it, it is really interesting to think about the difference between uh, indoor climbing, outdoor climbing, the board. And for you specifically, like uh, personally, my read on Josh is that he jumps the mindsets based on the style, right? And so in the gym, he probably is doing the vast majority of his climbing in that effort commitment mindset. And maybe if he goes to Rocklands or he goes to, you know, wherever outdoor crag that he likes to, that's also the same mindset as why he likes the South. Maybe he likes that, but then he goes to maybe Squamish or Tahoe or, you know, whatever. And sure, maybe there's a couple of climbs in those areas that are really good for that mindset, but then he tries the other one and then he jumps in that learning mindset. And so that's where I see, you know, I've always described climbing areas as the, that climbing area requires a language to be able to read that properly. Of course, you can bulldoze it and see cer certain words and be like, oh, I get it. Yeah, for sure. I get, it. you know, I, I can read it. And I chose to see this as scrolls. You know, I go to the area, I go to Bishop, I go to chat, I go to somewhere and I have to discover the scrolls that this area is trying to teach me. And I have to actually learn the language. And before I do that, if I don't do that, I'll never learn it. You know, of course you can get through it, get by, send your grades, send your numbers. Fine. Do whatever you want to do, guys. Everyone can do that. I'm not telling anybody how to rock climb, but I am saying that there's a layer underneath that, that we can, we have an opportunity to read the scrolls and actually understand what this climbing area is trying to teach us and how to, how to read it properly, whether it's a learning mindset, whether it's a committed mindset, and that may be a more effective way to grow in climbing. Well, okay. So to, before we to go me, into practical, well, just yeah, yeah. to me, that, that is the, that is the, the major to major in is this ability to adapt to the situation because at the end of the day, what we're doing in climbing is climbing is fixed and we have to figure out our way up. And that, that's part of the beauty. It's why we're anti-chipping mm -hmm. in general too, is just, okay, here's the challenge. No one, right. you know, no one tells you the right way or the right, they're just, it just is. And so that ability to adapt is, is really what makes climbing beautiful. And, and it's why yeah. it's really fun about climbing in my opinion, versus gymnastics, where I had my background is in gymnastics, there really was a right way to do a move. Like it just, 
that that just there is the right biomechanical way. And it just always, ha- and then you would just repeat it over and over again, get deeply ingrained. I'm not saying what they're doing isn't amazing and incredible, but it just, I remember going climbing after that and there was no coach telling me like, you should have heel hooked that instead of toe hooked. I just like, I don't know, I'm going up there and this is, this is me, but uh, this is where you have to keep, you, you, you have to keep going deeper and uh, you have to keep growing by subjecting yourself to things that are, aren't intuitive. So I, you know, everyone has a thing that kind of comes naturally to them. And this is where you've talked about whatever you do with intentionality over time is kind of what makes you into a climber. And so if you are intentionally seeking out things that you cannot do intuitively, you are growing, you you are growing as a climber and giving yourself a, a bigger vocabulary to tackle things, both more difficult but then also more efficiently because now all of a sudden you have tools even in your style. And I talked about this, how I came back from Squamish and then I was better in the gym. And you think, well, why was that? Like you were so great in the gym. I I, I don't really know exactly. I can't tell you every little thing that that. changed it, but it's just, it was proof positive that exposing myself to things that were not intuitive, that put me into an uncomfortable position and then, Maybe letting my letting my ego go a little bit, and just mm-hmm. listening, uh, learning, and then committing uh, is that loop. It's that loop that we're always talking about. Okay, climb intuitively. Yeah. Like this is you. Oh no, this isn't working. Okay, what can you do different? Okay, see if that works. Oh, it did work. Okay, now that just got added into your intuition, and repeat. Anyways, yeah. there you go. Oh, I love that. I, I love that. And that this, I think actually, so on that note, by the way, you know, the idea of intuitive picking or, you know, like learned picking intentional thing, picking in terms of like what you actually choose to do, there's a balance there. And that that's, I think the, the grayest area in climbing right now, which is like, do you want things, do you want things to be directed or do you want things to just feel natural and you just go for them? Like, yeah, in an ideal world, everything feels natural and your body just goes up the easiest path. Is that going to happen? maybe after a hundred years of practice, you know, and a hundred different styles and, you know, and so yes, it is ideal to climb like that. We should strive to climb like that. And we should understand the aspects that's required to climb intuitively, but don't expect it to happen just because you choose to climb intuitively. You're going to be dumb and committed and not look at all the theory. Right. And so that's why we're talking about the mixture. Um, okay. Uh, optimal execution of this. Ideally, we keep things rational and objective in climbing, right? Like we don't want to have all these feelings. We don't want to have, uh, we don't want to have positive or negative feelings. We just want to be objective. We want to be rational and use logic to make decisions in climbing. But because we use feelings, you know, what feels possible to hold or what, how much we can pull on this or what foot feels good or better or worse as our internal metrics assessment system, we use, we use feelings as our internal metric system in assessment system in climbing. Because of that, we must be very accurate when using this system for, for conducting our orchestra, right? Because, and that's me saying that using our feelings is probably the best way to say, oh, I feel like I can, you know, create this way. I feel because all the best climbers do that, right? But because we use that, we have to be very careful about if that's actually from a rational place. Okay. That is the optimal execution of this is actually seeing what you feel and then assessing that. I, uh, again, I can't kind of keep going. Uh, it's another tip. 
make as many assumptions as possible with good rational thinking, of course, is kind of going back to that. Josh and I would rather see you try really hard with the wrong thing. This is fine. Just make assumptions. It, it, it doesn't matter if they're incorrect or correct. Just make as many assumptions as possible before any given attempt with good rational thinking. Give a moment to assess personal biases based on factors that might already make you lopsided. For example, if you're really strong at crimping and you're not so good at slopers and pinches and you read this climb that has crimps, pinches, and slopers, and you're constantly like, oh, well, dude, for sure, I'm going to stay on this crimp and I'm going to full, or even better, if you're a full crimper and you don't know how to open hand and you're like, oh, dude, the best way for sure is to, oh, but which one's my personal bias? And okay, interesting. How does that affect? And it's not to say that, you know, always you're going to lean towards this personal bias and that's always the wrong way. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's just be careful of that personal bias and see what it's actually saying, you know, hold, and then hold, try 100%. On, on that, yeah, on that personal bias, I just got to share something that I recognized in myself that I learned also from listening to Ethan Salvo too, is some of my personal bias is to try extremely hard. So it's, if you're trying to deconstruct a move, Interesting. often what I will do is, oh, I just need to lock it off a little further. And Ethan, maybe if he was with me in Squamish, you might say, Hey Josh, what if you tried just shifting your hips a little bit to the left and just kind of sinking over into it? And like, ah, oh, I actually remember this climb in, in Tahoe where I was trying to pull through this little crimp to get to the next one. And all my friends were just cruising this move. And then I watched them. And what they were doing is they were actually, instead of pulling through the crimp to get to the next one, they were grabbing the crimp, shifting over away from the crimp, like relaxing and then reaching up. And it's just this, like, I, I know it's obvious sometimes, but again, this is just this bias of who are you? What do you know that you tend to lean towards? And then be careful uh, and try to be more objective, you know, which is impossible. But this is also where yeah. you, know, you kind of get this voice in your head. Like I always say that it's not about, you can never really be objective. This is a whole philosophical topic that I won't get into. You can never really be objective. I love that. But you can recognize your bias and more quickly switch yeah. from what your bias is into something that may help you. And this is where it's good to have friends. Uh, and you know, I, I, my favorite one is this is where we talked about that performance under pressure. And when you start getting stressed, how you know that you, your particular biases may lead towards you taking away off your feet or whatever the case may be. And so now the more you recognize it, like, yes, you're going to have this subjective experience and, but how quickly can you say, okay, but what about how I always do this? So maybe I need to uh, put this under a different lens. And yeah, so I just want to jump in there for yeah. that. No, that's so cool because you're also, so Josh is a philosophy major, which for, for me, it's always validating when I say something that I think about how the brain works or something and you kind of double down on it. I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, it's for me, it's validation because you're a philosophy major and I'm not, I don't know anything about philosophy necessarily. I just, I philosophize in this way. And through my realizations, I realized that nothing's objective in climbing because we have so many feelings as part of our metric system, our metric assessment system. And by metric assessment system, I do mean like what you think you're capable of, which is usually wrong. That's why I was saying that it's better to be like Jesse here in this, in this way where we just believe our body's capable of anything. And then we just try really hard to match that because more likely you're going to get your potential then you're, you think that you're capable of something. And it's like, dog, you're, you don't know what you're capable of. You don't even know the best way to get up the wall, you know, and kind of to point on you doing a move and your personal bias was to choose to go for more versus choose for differently. I would say that either one of those ways is incorrect. 
I would say that you want to be doing both, right? Like you want to be doing a bit of both, right? Ideally, you want to try more and differently at the same time, right? The ideal would have been because Josh, what you're doing there is something that most people don't do. Most people do the other thing. Most people do the other thing because it's the easiest way out. The easiest way out is to do something differently because that move feels too hard, right? It's harder to embrace how difficult something is and try for it, right? But it doesn't mean that one's more effective than the other. They're both effective and you need to do both, right? And so like basically my point there is, could you have done the move your way or their way at a higher rate? I don't know. It just depends. It literally just depends on how creative they are or how strong you are. Right. And so we don't want to lean too hard in those ways. That's that's kind of the whole point of this is to say we don't want to lean either of those two ways. We want to be using both. Right. Well, I want um, I, want I do you, make a uh, I want to use that as a as a launching off point for a couple of the just the actual scenarios in which we find ourselves in and, and how we might see that blend of those mindsets. Are you OK with me jumping in on that or did? Yeah. You, yeah. Uh, OK. I'll like, just go back to this later after. Yeah. OK. Uh, you know, when you're flashing or on-siding or in a comp, you definitely have both of these mindsets while you're climbing either, you know, mm. literally while you're climbing, it's kind of a, this blend of both where you have to switch really quickly between them. Actually, I'm going to just use the example of Kalimnos again. That that was a good example of, okay, uh, you know, what, what should I do here? I'm at like a bit of a rest. Um, wh what do I do? I mean, it could happen even just in the moment super quickly where you have that moment where you say, okay, I have to be open to everything. Like, is there a foot that I'm not seeing? Like, is there uh, a way to take this crimp where it's more of an underclink? Just really quickly, you look at all these choices and then you say, okay, it's this one and you commit and you commit 100%. Okay, so that's like, that's a scenario that we find ourselves in. I just wanted to showcase how those mindsets yeah. may play during it. And then we have projecting where you're stuck and you're you know deconstructing a climb, trying to work it. And there clearly you have a lot of open-mindedness, lots of learning, and you want to check off all the different boxes. Like maybe it's this foot, maybe it's this foot. Okay. I saw a heel hook here and this is where you pull on and, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you're just checking things out, but then you have to decide on a beta. And then you go a hundred percent into that committed mindset where you really find out, is this beta that works? And if it really works well, or you won't even know if it works until you really commit. So that, that's how that interplays on projecting. And then if you're just kind of cruising around and climbing, just, I don't know, you know, you're, you're romping through the gym, like, like Tim, I would say just climb intuitively and focus on the effort mindset. You know, maybe you find yourself on a move and you have to be open for a moment while climbing, but there's nothing wrong with just you know, climbing intuitively with a hundred percent commitment. And that's beautiful and feels really fun, but it's when you fall that you should start adopting that learning mindset. Or if you get to the top and you feel awful, take that as a cue that maybe you should take a step back. And actually uh, we, we had someone in, the, in our classroom ask us, why are people obsessed with flashing? And he was a bit of a newer climber, mm -hmm. but you know, he talked about how he flashed something and he got to the top and he was like, man, just felt awful. And to me, that's a cue that, Hey, maybe you should take a step back and say, my intuition wasn't quite nice. right. You know, it, 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 it worked, but was there something for me to learn here? And yes, I committed. Yes, it worked. And you know, you don't have to do that. You can just keep on moving to the next one and you will get stopped eventually. But these are just kind of tips for, uh, th that we're trying to give to you where, how do you know when to apply which? You know, how do they come into play? And again, these aren't all the mindsets that are available in climbing. These are just things that right. these are tools that we've noticed that we think are helpful.
Yeah, because by the way, you know, like uh, one aspect of climbing, because yeah, I, I do a fair bit of flashing and competitions. I do a fair bit of projecting on really, really hard limit things. And I do a fair amount of gym romping where I go around, but I'm also a high baller, which is a very, very, very different mindset. And that's for me, you know, I think at the end of it, why I encompassed everything, because I was like, well, what's the mindset that gets me to highballing? You know, what's the mindset that gets me successfully highballing? And it's a mixture of these two mindsets. It's right in between. If I had too, too hard one way or the other, I'd probably kill myself. Seriously, like I really mean that. Like if I if I didn't fix this mindset of myself, I would have killed myself a long time ago, <laughs> or like hurt myself really badly. Hold on, hold on. Um, I, I actually I just say that again because I I think it shows how dangerous both sides can be in your ability to actually climb well. Because if you are committed a hundred percent with beta that you really have no understanding of, you're gonna fall. And if you spend all the time. Uh, you know, not really in the moment committed to the mechanics, then you're going to fall. And so I, I love yeah. that when you you really just took it to the absolute extreme, but it shows you how important and valuable those things are while, while climbing. Yeah. So cool stuff. Yeah. I don't well, need to say it. I mean, stuff. you just said it perfectly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, highballing is is about not falling. You know, it's it's actually not about, it's not just about perfect perfecting your execution of the wall. It's It's also about not falling, which is I've always described this to youth climbers and like people training sport climbing that that survival mindset and the defensive mechanisms in climbing can be dangerous, but it only can be. And it usually is dangerous if you don't work on it. But highballing for me taught me how to work on it and actually use it to my advantage and saw all little things that cause me falling, right? Things cause you falling as a climber. You don't just fall sometimes. Some things cause you falling. And of course, things you just fall sometimes. And this kind of next thing I was about to say um, really shows that, but it's okay. And that, and falling is, is fine when you just can't do something, but ideally you work your body to the point where you're capable of almost anything you direct yourself to do, which you think, you know, things are possible in climbing. And you just try to make sure that that's replicated consistently. And that truly shows a mastery in climbing. And that's really what I feel that I was trying to explore was mastering climbing to the point where if you put consequences on the line, I actually knew that I wasn't going to fall. And I felt very confident about that stuff. I mean, I was always surprising people with the amount of mileage I would put on these things roped. And I would always say I didn't do much. You know, I sent Ambrosia the first day I tried it ever, ever. You know, I tried it. I was like, oh man, Kids I think don't I could try this have home. fun on this. <laughs> Kids don't try that at home. I tried the bottom boulder the same day and I, and I climbed it that night. And it wasn't a choice. It was just like, it was very, kids don't in the moment, I was night. like, <laughs> kids don't eyeball at night either. Yeah, I did Ambrosia at like God. 10 p.m. the first oh, time. God. Just, okay. Uh, back to who the point here. Just, it's so hard to express. As someone who has been on top of Grandpa Peabody, <laughs> Ambrosia is so tall, you guys. It is so tall. It, yeah. Just anyway, I, I don't want to get into it. I just sometimes I think about, I, Tim, I'm very happy that you're done with focus. I, I'm very happy you're still with us. We have both legs intact, still, you know, spitting wisdom Thanks, on man. here. Uh, and yeah, good <laughs> job. Yeah. Anyways, that's, I have, that has nothing to do with Thanks. anything. I just, Thanks, my man. hands are sweaty and scary from even thinking about you on Ambrosia. So good job. Yeah. Well, so, okay. It's, so back to it. It's, it's funny that you just brought up these different scenarios and like where, you know, how to kind of navigate those things and see the differences, because I make a really general kind of call to action for you guys for the optimal execution of mixing these mindsets to be the proper conductor. And I do say actually very similar what to what you just said. I say, try 100% with the effort and commitment mind. And then in parentheses, I say, unless you can't get past a threshold of fear or required strength. Those are two scenarios that I see, you know, if you're in a position, you're like, oh, I'm just too scared. Or if that move is just too hard, then you poke the learning mind awake for a second. 
That's what I usually do. What I usually do is I try 100% intuitively with mostly just effort and commitment in mind because I have such a wide base of what I think general concepts work in climbing. I can do that, right? And so that's a big given there. But as soon as I'm like, ooh, that's pretty scary. Ooh, that's pretty hard. I just poke the learning mind awake for a second. I look around and I use that learning mind there. And then I shut it off again with my breath work and my thoughts and like whatever I have. And that's some more practical uh, tips. One more note here on the optimal execution of this. Once you're done, once you're done with an attempt, be careful to go quickly to the emotional state. And we're so quick, myself included, to assess my climbing and, you know, talk shit or, you know, talk about good things and whatnot. But be careful with that. Take some Take some deep breaths, quickly wake up the learning mind and try to remember everything that just happened on the wall. That's when the learning mind is most effective. It's like trying to remember a dream. You know, when you you need to think about it right when you wake up, maybe even having a journal right next to your bed is the best way to remember vivid dreams. And people have talked about this tip in remembering dreams because they go away within, I don't know, like 10 minutes uh, after you dream. I see climbing in the same way, although it's within seconds, it's within minutes after an attempt. Usually I'll ask climbers when I'm coaching them, like, all right, what happened? You know, whether it was good or bad, whether you fell or you sent, like, what happened? Like specifically, and I'll ask people very specific mechanics, like, okay, well, they were working on this part of your hip. We were look, working on this part of the timing over this foot or pulling through this movement. Did you do it? What happened there? Right. And people are often like, dog, I don't know. I'm like, well, you don't know, but you didn't even try, right? If you don't try to remember, you're not going to know, right? I don't expect you to know. I expect you to try to remember And so huge point for you guys, it's something that I do regularly in my climbing nowadays because it's so difficult. And I'm I'm at the point where I can fall and I could argue with anybody else watching me climb what I think happened in in terms of my body. And I usually am 100% correct of exactly what part of my fingers dry fire. If my ring finger dry fires, I know my ring finger dry fire. If my foot even just turned 20 degrees to the left while I was doing this move because I biased my knee versus rolling over my foot. I know that I know what my body is kind of opting towards in terms of survival or choices. And I don't like those things, right? I'm choosing to try to climb optimally and perfectly. And so I do know when it's a little bit off optimal and it's not, it's so hard to control. So of course, of course I can't really control that, but, um, be careful to go straight to that emotional state. Okay. I, I always love that because I, I have a tendency to do that. I think everyone does. And I'm just going to leave you with, one last kind of scenario that I see in the gym and, and it's it, like, this has happened to me. This has happened to everyone. And I, I'm just going to use it to showcase how we might use these mindsets to our benefit. I'm just going to paint a picture for you. You see someone climbing on a climb and there's a jug that they're heel hooking on to do a move, but the jug is too low and they can't reach the move using that heel hook. And they just try it again. And again, this is a real thing that I actually witnessed. And I don't know why it's, I probably saw it like eight years ago. It just burned in my head. Saw this person just committing everything to this heel hook that was just not going to work. It was just way too far. It was was never going to work. And what you want is to have someone come up or ideally it happens internally. And you say, hey, hey, Joe, uh, you actually got a high step on this foot and not heel hook. And then you want to see them take the same kind of commitment that they were committing to that heel hook jug that they tried 10 Mm. times, giving everything from the ground, trying as hard as they can, coming up short on that next hold, put that right foot up or, you know, whatever of high foot and just stand up and do that move first. Try and go, Oh, all that effort I was putting in, I put into this different beta and I committed a hundred percent and it worked. 
Awesome. So, you know, I'm sure we've all seen this. It just, it blows my mind when I see, I just, I, I can't tell you how many times I see people trying data yeah, that just, you're just like, this is where video is good or having buddies is good is it's just not going to work. Like you just watch, you just say, mm -hmm. look, mm -hmm. man, like this will never work. Um, okay. Tim, uh, I got to wrap because I'm going to go get uh, another, uh, another massage in my back, dude. And, uh, hopefully I can, nice. I can feel better, but the conductor side of me is saying, go, go find, go find help. Yeah. <laughs> I have a small list of practical steps uh, okay. that I would love to go over. Good, good. Um, so very, very quickly. Um, and these are really bare bones. There's so many practical steps to talk about when it comes to working on mindset. So really keep in mind that these are not the end all be all answers, but this is what I use at breathwork, man. I, I have not said this enough, man. And I think I have said it enough, but it seems to not get through to people's brains that breathwork can be the most effective easy tool to implement your climbing. And I'll, I'll tell you why I use exhales to teach my body appropriate rhythm and rev control. Okay. What do I mean by that deep and slow exhales with an emphasis on disengaging. This allows me to tap into learning mind a bit when I need to, right? You stick a hard movement. Usually for me, it's every movement that I stick. I find an exhale, whether it's deep or whether it's quick. And for different reasons, I find exhales pretty much no matter what, boom, set my feet up, move, boom, constant exhales, right? Constant. And if I'm in a longer rest position and I need to get out of this, I rev up, you know, quicker, shallower breaths. Uh, and, and that's just to get more excited to get, to get out of positions. I look for inhales and brace breaths to focus on specific mechanics that actually can get movements done. Focus on the move, focus on the foot, right? And then that's, so that's one practical step at breath work. Exhales and inhales can be used separately. It takes years of practice. And I'll tell you, it actually has taken me years and years of practice to actually feel comfortable using these things, but they can be incredible tools. Uh, exhales first, uh, for everybody who wants to practice using breaths, don't worry about the inhales so much. Inhales really are for hard movements and teaching yourself specific mechanics. Exhales are far more frequent and far more effective. And also just the lowest hanging fruit that I've seen in 99% of climbers, okay? 99% of climbers, including strong climbers, climbers who climb V15. I still watch climbers who I know climb V15 now who don't put exhales into the climbing. And I'm like, wow, how many little tricks are you missing out on, right? Um, of course, they're doing something, right? But they could be using that. Sauting, that, you know, beloved power scream. I know there's haters out there for it. And I, just love, I know there's lovers out for it. This, I'm not here to talk about that. But sodding helps just tap into the effort mind. It just helps to tap into the commitment mind. You know, there's a lot of layers to this. I know Josh is also a proponent of using some voice in your climbing, but it just helps to quiet the mind, right, Josh? I, I, just, I, know, you, I know you know that that's the effectiveness of, of sodding. It just helps to tap into that effort I mind. Love just it. so much easier. Love it. The last practical step here is to watch video. You know, it's something that Josh went into earlier. Watch your falls. This will tell you clearly what you are committing to and if you were committing, right? It kind of helps to tell you, of course, the learning mindsets things and, you know, helps you assess which betas look rationally possible or look logically possible or not. But I more mean that if you watch your falls and you don't see failure, you don't actually see failure happening in mechanics, maybe you're not tapping into that commitment mindset enough. And so that's, that's really the most important point in terms of watching videos and falls that I want to make point. You know, if you're cutting feet and stuff, your hands should be popping off and there should be tons of tension and trajectory from your body coming off the wall. That's what I look like every single Dude, time I fall off the wall. How, how many times do you see people? Uh, well, first of all, people will be looking down before they 
grab yeah. the hold, like, or, you know, reach their high point in their, their movement and they fall often. That's not a fall. Yeah, that's that's not, giving up. Also often, if people look down before doing the move, you almost know 99 times out of a hundred that they're not going to really try hard. It's just, that, that's just, yeah. So those are, I, I, those are great practical tips for both effort and for learning mindset, breath work. It's, you know, it, the reason why breath work is so interesting is because we're not in control of a lot of our subconscious things like our heartbeat, but the breath is this interesting thing where it's both subconscious, you you breathe without trying, but then you also have a very direct a conscious ability to control it. And so that's why it, it seems to be our window into uh, adjusting yeah. our subconscious systems. And uh, the last thing I'm going to say, uh, Tim, because I, I, I really got to go is uh, – I apologize. I guess we can always go on deeper on this, but I, I just wanted to to say that we now have Nilo Botle is now opened up spots on our coaching. This was, should have been part of the announcements, but I just got so swept up. And thank you again to everyone who uh, shared with us <laughs> those Spotify wrap things. But Nilo has finally opened up some spots. The one of the most common emails I get is for coaching. <laughs> we just are jam-packed full although maybe 2024 will will uh will change that if, if anyone's looking for coaching i'll keep keep reaching out we'll add you to the list and when we have more coaches we'll uh we'll get in touch with you and i just wanted to to leave it at that and just say thanks tim i love all these always have a fun talking about all these nuances i will say that we'll probably talk about more board climbing too in 2024 because boy did that get a lot of love and response and so you if you're out it. there yeah and and if there's anything specific in the boards that you want us to tackle we're psyched uh, i mean i have i have a moon board in both houses that i am back in my childhood farm and in my home now so uh i'm i'm on board that's a that's a really lame joke there all right Tim, <laughs> i gotta i gotta go i dude. got I like that one. All right. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the long test piece nerdy lecture. Um, but yeah, hope you guys got value out of it. And uh, Josh, I'll see you after I go to Korea. I'm going to Korea this weekend for a week. I'm psyched. Oh, yeah. And, eat big. Uh, Call me yeah. Jim. I'm telling you, I'll send you those oh, lists. Eat big. Yeah. Love yeah. And go, go, maybe. Back. All right. That's the land of moonboarding, too. Okay. All right, Tim. Take care, dog. <laughs> yeah. Take care. See ya. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about Test Piece Climbing, you can check us out at testpiececlimbing.com and even book a session with one of our coaches. Mm-hmm.